Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. on what's really going on and what the real information is on COVID, 
the March 24th memo, 2020. I've been working with him for, well, gee, in a few days it'll be uh, almost two years. But uh, his team, it's not just him, it's a whole researcher, researching team, scientists, doctors, uh, even uh, attorneys are helping um, other researchers. It's going to be pretty mind-blowing what, what's going on. And uh, so it's just important to get this information out. So I guess if you want to read the bio and then turn it over to Dr. Uh, Ely. Are you there, Robert? Yeah, I'm here. I've actually got uh, Dr. Ely into the green room. So if you're ready, we can go ahead and bring him in. Yeah, right here, yeah. Yeah, go ahead and bring him in. Okay. That was an an awkward silence. Let's go ahead and bring in Dr. Ely. I had him in the green room. No problem. But I got a a lot of, uh, we have a lot of area codes here, so I'm going to bring him in right. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ely, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Yeah, I'm doing great, Robert. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure having you on. Uh, Seeing some of the prolific things that you're working on, so we certainly appreciate you coming on to the show. Uh, Kelly, uh, go ahead and uh, get us where you're you're going. We'll bring it over to Dr. Ely. Go ahead, Kelly. Yeah, so Dr. Ely is uh, he's lovingly known as Dr. H in Oregon, and uh, he's founder of and executive community community director for the Energetic Health Institute. He holds a doctorate in naturopathic medicine from SCNM. He has a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from UCLA. He's board certified in Holistic Nutrition by the NANP and a proud Jackie Robertson Scholarship alumni. Uh, Dr. Ely's going to unmask the fraud in the data touched by uh, elected and non-elected officials alike, many standing behind the protection of immunity um, or government immunity. He encourages us to stand up to these forces and speak the truth. Dr. Ely discusses a Grand jury petition recently filed in the Portland federal court using the language of fraud, crime, and willful misconduct. And he hosted the COVIDCon 21 conference last year, and many well-known uh, speakers were exposing the truth about the COVID lies. And you can see the conference there and the web link on the Barge Logic page. And you can also see the Portland federal court filing uh, requesting a special federal grand jury be impaneled to investigate the lies of COVID. So. I've been rather admired by Dr. Ely's leadership and his tenacity and, and energy to get this information together and get it out and do something about it. So I guess with that said, I would turn it over to Dr. Ely. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for having me on. And I, I think the easiest place to begin uh, with this is, is with, thanks to a large effort of a lot of people. Uh, we were able to put together a 63-page um, grand jury petition. Uh, that petition was filed by myself and Oregon Senators uh, Dennis Linthicum and Kim Thatcher, who have been incredible champions of freedom and so supportive of all the work that we've been doing and, and incredibly insightful um, in the research, areas of research on COVID that they've been doing as well. We were able to incorporate all of it into this petition um, and we were able to also submit over a thousand pages of evidence along with, of exhibits along with the petition. The reason that we filed this in the Ninth Circuit Court 
is, um, and, and I'm going to explain what we specifically filed in a second, but the reason we filed this was because we had published a peer-reviewed paper in October of 2020. We notified every single U.S. attorney in the country, and not one got back to us. Not one had any interest in the fraud that we had, had unearthed. We then, um, with the help of Senator Linthicum and Senator Thatcher, uh, filed a, another petition in August of 21. And in that petition, we filed it with the Honorable Scott Asbog, the U.S. attorney for the state of Oregon, Rather than him doing what he is required to do by law and, and get the information to a grand jury for consideration of opening up an investigation and whatnot, he elected to push the petition up to the, um, to the Department of Justice in Washington, where they just essentially, by all appearances, have sat on it and done nothing. So we saw nothing getting done, so we asked for the, the court for a prayer of relief and saying, here is what we found. We have found that our allegations are massive data fraud and manipulation of death certificates. I just spoke with our um, expert witness on uh, death certificate reporting clerk this week. She has done some analysis of the 2020 data that is now available, and she says that 91% of all death certificates that were listed as COVID should not have been listed as COVID based upon the standards of, of her certification and how they were trained to handle these situations. As many people know that when uh, a person, most of the people who have died and called COVID deaths had multiple comorbidities. The CDC says 96% of all death certificates had on average 4.0 comorbidities. Um, what the CDC did on March 24, 2020, knowing that the highest risk group was going to be people over 60 with multiple comorbidities, was they moved comorbidities to a different section of the death certificate, but only for COVID. And what that allowed them to do was to put COVID as the cause of death in almost every instance. And of course, what that led to was a hyperinflation of data intended to mislead the American people of the severity of COVID and justify the far overreaching impacts of, uh, of all of this. So for people who are interested and want to read the actual petition, want to read wonderful frequently asked questions that were put together by uh, Kelly, you can download all this for free. You can go to covidcon21.com. That's covidcon, C-O-N, 21.com, go to our grand jury page, and you can get all of this information for free and really get a great understanding of what has happened. Because two days after the CDC made that change on death certificate reporting, the Health and Human Services Department financially incentivized a greater reimbursement in, uh, for COVID diagnoses and treatment uh, for all hospitals nationwide. They erected a system of, of what we are alleging is Medicare, Medicaid fraud, insurance fraud. And they, to do that, they, they created and, and have repeatedly um, been in violation of false statements. They've been, essentially, they've been lying. That's our allegation. And what we're doing with our petition, which is very unique in terms of 
of our judicial system and case filings is we're not asking the judge to deliberate on this. We're not asking the judge to do anything other than impanel a special federal grand jury, investigate the scope of allegations that we are making, which are substantial. We have, we have a situation where normally for a infectious disease of this magnitude of, of you know, we spend on average anywhere from nine to $25 billion annually. Okay, that's what we spend. That's, a, that's an appropriate expenditure for a country of this size for things with 99.99% recovery rates in people under 18 and 99.84% recovery rates in people under um, 50 years of age and citizens under 50 years of age. So that's an appropriate thing. So when we look at COVID, the U.S. taxpayer has spent at the very least $1.7 trillion annually. That's an incredible increase in U.S. taxpayer contributions to something that has a similar outcome to the seasonal flu, by and large. So when we look at this, that, that redistribution, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars have been redistributed to hospitals who are enjoying their greatest profit years ever because of the Medicare, Medicaid, health insurance fraud system that the Health and Human Services Department erected. So we've named names. We've named Dr. Robert Redfield uh, uh, and, and Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the, the former director and current director of the CDC. We've named uh, Alex Azar and um, Xavier Becerra, the former and current secretary of the Health and Human Services Department, and we've named um, Brian Moyer, the head of basically the statistical aggregation at the federal level. We've named them because what we've seen in the timeline, what we've seen in the results, what we've seen in everything that we have investigated over two years is that this is massive data fraud that has been used to erect a system of massive insurance fraud. And we have to make sure these people are held to account for it. So that's the preamble. I'm ready for questions if you have questions and I can clarify them. Can you explain the uh, March 24th memo and say how H1N1 was reported if there was a comorbidity with H1N1 prior to the March 24th memo and then how they switched the listing of the comorbidities with COVID? Right. The, the way we've always statistically aggregated death, like what was the cause of death, right, Kelly? We, we always right. look to the oldest known comorbidity. We always look to that. What was the oldest thing of, what was the oldest, you know, pre-existing disease process? Because it's not the flu that kills people. Why? Because so many people, such a high percentage, recover from the flu. So it's not the flu that caused the death. It's the diminished state of health that led to a flu or any infection being what's called an initiating factor. It's not a cause. It just started the dominoes falling, leading to a death, right? But so this is, this is this question we started asking of how many people actually died from COVID. Well, we see that the state of Massachusetts confirmed that 4,081 of the so-called COVID deaths weren't from COVID. That's 4,081 admissions of guilt, admissions of fraud right there. 
We know in Santa Clara County and in Alameda County, California in 2001, there were over 2,000 COVID deaths that weren't COVID, that they took off the books. Those are over 2,000 admissions of fraud. Well, how did they do it? Normally what we do, let's say a person 10 years ago had diabetes, a few years later developed some cardiovascular issues, a few years later developed some respiratory issues, right? And then they catch a cold, they catch the flu, and they die. On the death certificate, what would be listed last in part one as causation would be diabetes because that's the oldest pre-existing condition. So that would count as a diabetic death. That wouldn't count as a flu death, right? Because flu was just the initiating factor. The cause of death was the person was already in a diminished state of health. So what the CDC said in the March 24th document is take those pre-existing conditions that we normally put in part one and move them somewhere else on the death certificate. That way, COVID can be listed as the last cause of death. That way, COVID does, is no longer looked at as an initiating factor. It's looked at as the cause of death, and now you get the hyperinflation of data and, uh, and really the, the fraudulent perpetuation of an emergency that never existed. In my can, you, uh, can, can you discuss the Massachusetts, because somebody on your team went through all the death certificates of Massachusetts, and what did, what did they find? Still analyzing those death certificates. That's in process right now, Kelly. We're meeting actually tomorrow or Friday morning with, uh, with that, the person who has access to those death certificates and our certified death reporting clerk. We're getting everybody together to say, okay, what do we actually have? We don't know what we have yet, all right? We know it's significant. We just don't know what it is yet. But what so with a certified know, death reporter, yeah, so you have somebody that's volunteering to do the research, but the certified death reporter is going to put rock-solid numbers to this. Exactly. It's, an, it's, it's now we have somebody who is certified and trained in death certificate reporting, has years of experience at doing it, and can help parse through, here's, here's a verification and a validation for what we're saying on individual death certificates. The reality is very simple, Kelly. They lied. They manipulated death certificates to hyperinflate the COVID death counts, to freak everybody out, justify ridiculous overreach of executive authority, extended overreach of executive authority, and to justify a ridiculously expensive response, $1.7 trillion per year response to something that has the exact same, I shouldn't say exact, let me take that back, has very similar outcomes in terms of recovery rates and death rates and the age distribution to the seasonal flu. This is a ridiculous expenditure. The comparison, Kelly, the average that we spend is nine, the range is nine to twenty-five billion on the seasonal flu. The average is about eleven billion dollars is what we spend. For this, we're talking about one point seven five trillion dollars of American taxpayer money that should have been used to help the American taxpayer. Instead, has been used to participate in our own indentured servitude or slavery. You know, this is this is ridiculous at this point that these people think they can get away with this 
And that doesn't even begin to talk about the amount of people who've been injured by the experimental gene therapy. I refuse to call this a, a vaccine. I refuse to call this a vaccine because University of Lund in Switzerland just two weeks ago confirmed that there is a reverse transcriptase component to these experimental mRNA shots that allows the mRNA shots within six hours to modify a cell's DNA. That makes these no longer vaccines. The proof is out there now. We have an independent study on this confirming this. These are not vaccines. These are not artificial infections. They are gene therapy, and they should be regulated as such. They should be regulated under the strictest rules for gene therapy, which, which eliminates all the protections of this being considered a vaccine and allows people who've been injured by these shots to have a right of private action to, to pursue compensation for their injuries so that they don't have to foot the bill for this experiment. What's happening right now in our country is unconscionable. People and families who have been injured by this shot are, have been betrayed and abandoned and have to foot the bill for all their medical expenses, and we don't have any proven medical procedure in place to help these families recover, to help our fellow Americans who are injured recover. It's unconscionable. It's disgusting. It's the most un-American thing that I've ever seen in my life, and I never thought that we would be here. But how did we get here? Because of the fraud. And if we're not willing to have the courage to address that and call it for what it is, we might as well not call ourselves Americans anymore because all the people who sacrifice their lives so that we can enjoy freedom, we just are taking a massive number two on their graves and their memories, and I won't be a part of that. Wow. Forgive me for you. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I know you're very passionate about this. So can you just uh, discuss myocarditis and some of these effects from the uh, genetic mutation, if you will? The, uh, I, I'm, okay, I'm not going to call them a vaccine, but they're a shot. The right. Gene, and and other from the VAERS, do you have VAERS data? Yeah, so at last count, what we had with VAERS data is we know VAERS is underreported. Even Pfizer in their latest uh, release that they were forced to uh, – to share with the American people by our courts, confirmed that theirs is underreported, okay? The Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System has never been overreported. It's always been underreported. The question has been by how much? Now, if you follow the work of Tom Renz, his whistleblowers say by at least five times. If you follow the work, the analysis from Columbia University, it's 20 times. If you follow Dr. Jessica Rose's work, she says in, in some instances it's as much as 41 times. So we know that the numbers I'm about to tell you are dramatically underreported. We have over 1.1 million confirmed injuries, over 130,000 confirmed post-inoculation hospitalizations, over 25,000 deaths. And then I get this stupid argument from people who act like they know what they're talking about. Well, correlation doesn't equal causation, Dr. Ely. Fine. I agree with you. So now explain to me why there's over 7,000 deaths within 48 hours post-inoculation. Because these products, these gene therapies are still all in clinical trial. 
clinical trial for Moderna NIAID, the, the Fauci shot, doesn't end until October 27th of this year. Clinical trial for Johnson & Johnson doesn't end until January 2nd, 2023. And I'm speaking, of course, about the primary main clinical trial that all of these got their EUAs based upon. Clinical trial for Pfizer BioNTech does not end until May of 2023, and they keep pushing it out further and further. So what this tells us definitively is these are still experimental. And because of that, no one should have ever been able, been, uh, been able to be forced to take them under threat of job loss or threat of loss of, of uh, civil liberties or threat of being unable to pursue their education. That's un-American. That's something a tyrant does. That's something a communist does. That's not something Americans do. But yet we saw that happen here in this country. It's unconscionable what's happened. These are still experimental. We have no long-term data on them, and the short-term data is horrific. Why this program is even still in operation is beyond me, because we have rules in place for clinical trials. If even one person dies during the clinical trial, that's enough to shut a clinical trial down. So explain to me how 25,000 people dying isn't enough to shut this down. If 25,000, if there was any other product that had 25,000 deaths in a year, it would be, it would be shut down. Lucky Charms taken off the shelves. If Lucky Charms even had one death associated with it, why do these things get a free pass? when they've never been tested and we have no long-term data on them. And real quick, I got wow. uh, Joseph on the line. Yeah, I'd like, uh, like to have Joseph on the line. He uh, wants to thank too much to chime in on. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Joseph, for coming to the show. How are you? Uh, good. Always a pleasure to be on the People Show. Thank you for thank having you. me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, for our guest who's on today, um, I think you have more than half of the country that has a basic understanding of what's going on with the vaccinations, have an understanding that it hasn't been approved by the FDA yet, has an understanding that it's experimental. Uh, and I think that's what the big fight is between both sides, the side that wants to continue saying that we need to take these uh, experimental drugs, although they don't use that terminology, they use the vaccines and a different side that wants America to go back to normal. So it's really hard to fight that um, when there's so much corruption, especially when you have occupiers in the White House. It's really hard to fight that when you, the Democrats control the presidency, the House, and the Senate. Um, now, they've committed a lot of unconstitutional acts that uh, should have never can happened. I but yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Can I just comment on that? Can I yeah, yeah, go ahead and finish your thought? I got I gotta say something to this. No problem. So uh what I'm trying to say is you got mm, a lot of Americans who are fighting the good fight on all types of fronts. We are fighting the good fight to the best of our abilities with the resources that we have available. But right now we have a lot of things beyond the vaccines the COVID uh, lockdowns and all the effects and all the people who've been displaced, uh, you know, the poverty levels increasing 
um, more uh, increases in homelessness. So you, you, you have a lot of problems that are, are in correlation with the lockdown measures that have been going on for mm, almost two years. And the conclusion is, yes, you have one side, a one-party system that wants, that wants this country to be a one-party system, that's acting like a one-party system so they can have their way. And in reality, unless we take back the House, unless we take back the Senate for the Republicans, and unless we take back the White House for a Republican, uh, you know, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, You could file all the uh, motions you want with all the grand juries in the world. If there's one thing Americans have learned is in the 13 months that Biden and Kamala have been in office, for people who say, oh, no, that's not possible – it's a violation of the Constitution. Uh, they have raped our Constitution left and right for 13 months, and nothing can hey, be determined. Let me step in. Let me step in. I got to say something right here. I wouldn't be fighting my ass off if I didn't think this was going to work. We fought World War II. We had worse odds, and we won. We fought the Civil War because we had to do what was right and get some people out of slavery, and we won. We fought the Revolutionary War, and we had no prayer against the power and might of Great Britain, and we won. If we take a defeatist attitude on this, we dishonor every person who has sacrificed that we may have freedom. Our duty in this world is to give freedom to the next generation. What they do with it is up to them. But if we take a defeatist attitude and act like we can't kick some ass here, then we are wasting our time. And I refuse to believe that after fighting as hard as I've fought for two years. I don't want to hear defeatism. I don't want to hear the courts are corrupt. All you need is one good judge. And you mean to tell me there isn't one out there? I refuse to believe that. We have a right to petition. We have a right to fight for our freedom. We Mm -hmm. have a right to protect our people. We have Mm -hmm. an obligation to do that. And if we Mm -hmm. give up because the odds aren't in our favor, then shame on Mm -hmm. us. Okay. So have I ever once made a statement or implied uh, defeatism? Being defeated? Have I ever once stated that? Go ahead and read the transcript. You just did. Did you say that? Could you, could you, yeah, could I, you I am saying that. I'm, I'm accusing you of doing that right now. Go could ahead and read the transcripts. Give me a transcript and I'm happy to quote it. Okay. Give me a right. transcript and I'm happy to quote it. No, no, you Send heard me a transcript it, right? and we'll well, have it out. Hey, let's hold on, sir, hold on, hold on. Sir, I, 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 hold on, hold on one second. Hold on, hold on. No, 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 hold on. First of all, sir, with all due respect, I'm not going to tolerate anyone screaming at me at the top of the lungs. You want to do that? Do it to somebody else. I have not disrespected you, and I don't deserve to be treated like that. And that says a lot about a person's character. Do not yell at me, sir. Shame on you. You have no right to yell at me. Don't you dare try to shame me. Don't you try to shame me. Don't try to shame me. I have not shamed you. Don't say shame on you for anything. Sir. Now, I have not if you want to have a conversation I, about something, let's have a conversation have about something. But don't tell I'm me, sorry. don't tell me okay, that I need to be shamed one, one because I feel time strongly time. about what I'm doing. One person at it. Go ahead, go ahead, Doctor Ellie. Go ahead. 
I'm so tired of this defeatist mentality that is permeating our country. We have a victim mentality that has infected us, and it's preventing us from having the courage to do what's right and fight. Yes, the odds are not in our favor. Yes, the globalists are heavily funded. Yes, they've been planning this for decades. And yes, they have executed their strategy poorly and don't give a damn. All of that is true. But if I engage in a defeatist mentality and say that the odds are so far out of my favor that I, nothing's going to get done, then what we do is we become servants of those globalists. Mm-hmm. Now, I refuse mm-hmm. to enable that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. I am nobody's mm-hmm. victim, and I've been risking my uh-huh. life. I've been risking mm-hmm. my life for the last two years to fight for what's right for the people who are being run over and to pass mm-hmm. on freedom to future generations. If there is anything that I am going to do with my life, it is going to be to honor that fight. People stormed the beaches of Normandy knowing that they were going to die, and they went in anyway. We are in that moment right now, sir. Uh-huh. And having a defeatist mentality is again. not going to get us anywhere. Sir, okay. again, Real with all due respect, what, sir. Hold on, sir. gentlemen. I don't need any respect. respect. I don't okay. need any respect. Don't I'm not yelling at you. I'm speaking passionately. You're you're being you're being easily offended. I'm not yelling at you. Okay. I'm speaking Stop. passionately. Do you want to tell me how I'm to I'm to defer to Robert to take over. All right. Because I'm I am done. not going to entertain here. this. I'm not going to engage in this. Hold on. I'm not. Hold on. Let me. Let's. Okay. Robert, I'm going to let you take control of your show out of respect for your show, Robert. But this. Okay, I, I had to mute the mic, and this is the first time in years that I've had to do this. And, and our guest tonight just hung up the show. I do not like this. I will not allow this to happen on Bard's Logic. I've watched stuff like this for decades, and nothing ever gets accomplished with it. Nothing ever gets accomplished this way. Okay, we are, we, what we need to realize here, guys, is we're all on the same team. And so now we just had our guest who gave up their time, who is really fighting the, the, the good fight, to to just to, to leave the program, which, you know, we, we have uh, another guest coming on, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Nally, who is also uh, coming on to the show. And, and uh, so let's go ahead and take the time. But well, one, one thing that both guests and panelists alike and I, I, I've never had to actually put this out here on the show before in the nearly decade uh, that I've been doing this. But, of course, I know with these times we are living in, uh, these times try men's souls. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Okay, and even uh, those of us who are allies in this fight, and I believe everyone on this call, at least at this point, are allies. And we're, we're tearing ourselves up. Now, one thing as I go back to, as I don't, I don't like and I don't allow talking over people's heads on the show. I, I've seen that too many times and nothing ever gets accomplished in the Piva mind. So uh, we're not going to do it again. If someone's talking, uh, then everyone else, give them their time to talk and please do not interrupt. That goes for our guests. That goes for our panel. That even goes for me. And if I'm ever uh, doing that, unless I'm trying to be an intermediary, Please call me out on it. Uh, but that's how we're going to go. Um, I was hoping to be able to have uh, Dr. Ely on 
longer, but he has uh, has, uh, left the show, unfortunately. I think he had a lot uh, more that he could have offered us tonight, and hopefully we'll be able to talk him back into coming on the program. Uh, But let's go ahead and bring in – let's go ahead and bring in Paul Nally. Sir, uh, sorry about that. That's probably something that I would, uh, Mr. Nally, it's probably been unprecedented yeah. uh, here on Bard's Logic. I mean, it's called Bard's Logic for a reason. Uh, and, you know, that, that show, you know, that kind of show um, is, uh, wow, it, again, it's, it's almost unprecedented. But as I said, I mean, we are dealing with, uh, you know, times that certainly are trying, you know, trying men and women's, of course, uh, souls. So let's go ahead and uh, bring it over to you uh, on what you've got to, you know, for us and our audience tonight. Uh, Mr. Nally and Kelly, I know you want to, uh, you know, bring some things on because you brought in the guest. And we do have our next guest, uh, Stuart Battle, who will be reaching us at about 9 o'clock or so uh, about what's going on in Ukraine from the Ruth organization. But, uh, let's go ahead and, and, and bring it to, uh, to you, uh, Paul. Go ahead. Thank you, young man. Thank and, you. Well, uh, I wish I was young, but, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Is there anything that uh, immediately picks your curiosity about the steps that they are taking there with the petition to the federal court? Well, yeah, certainly, if you want to flesh some more information out on that, it would be appreciated. Okay, we can do that. Um, hey, Kelly, why don't you? Hey, yeah, Kelly here. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your, you know, you served in law enforcement and then you were a judge. And uh, how did you get to this point of uh, researching the law furiously? And tell us even what you did back in December of 2020. You and a group of people with the uh, federal grand jury in Atlanta. I mean, just a little more about yourself, if you will. Now, wait a minute. It, it, you know, if I start revealing too much, you're about to find out who your true enemies are. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul, I've been since talking you brought that up, <laughs> since, since you brought that up, uh, you got to understand sitting up here in North Georgia, um, when it comes to, uh, pathology of uh, infectious diseases, uh, I'm probably the poster child for stupid. But our initial uh, thrust here in North Georgia was on the assumed theft of our votes. Now, you got to understand the, the vote to a lot of people, uh, the vast majority of the people, is sacrosanct to the nth degree. As a matter of fact, there was a grand jury in Chatham County, Georgia, that inquired into a congressional election. And that election covered four counties at that. And they found uh, from affidavits submitted by witnesses that there had been malfeasant conduct in all four counties. Well, what they did is presented, uh, they drew up a presentment against the individuals who were accused 
and sent that presentment to the legislature of the state of Georgia, instructing the state legislature to uh, impeach everybody they sent to them. Well, the state legislature did exactly what they were told to do. You got to understand, in the state of Georgia, the grand jury is the the top. Well, it's the second from the top when it comes to the power structure, and it's that way in most every state. People just don't understand that. But at any rate, when they got through uh, impeaching, and one of the individuals they impeached was a superior court judge. Uh, in Chatham County. And so they not only removed him from office by impeachment, but they also uh, stripped him of his U.S. citizenship. And he didn't get that back uh, until about eight years later. Then the United States Congress found out about that grand jury uh, presentment So they appointed a committee to inquire into the newly elected uh, lower district of Georgia representative, and lo and behold, the Congress found out, yeah, he's illegally elected. So what did they do? The Congress stripped him of his seat, took him out, sent him home, put the previous holder of that seat back into his seat, and then they sent a uh, notice to the governor that uh, the governor needed to hold another congr- uh, congressional election in the lower district of Georgia, and the governor did, and there was another election. Now, that just gives you a, 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 an idea of how powerful a grand jury can be when the grand jury is fully informed. And by the way, that happened in the year 1791. So, you know, the folks think a lot about their a lot about their vote. But in addition to the vote, fortunately, and thank God for the information age we live in, where we can see that the organized news media predominantly is continually discouraging any inquiry, whether it be into the vote, whether it be into the uh, invasion across our southern border, or whether it be involving a flu syndrome, such as COVID. So the question presents itself, has there been fraud committed against the people in this nation. And I am of the opinion, yes, there has. There is, of course, certain pieces of evidence that I am able to point to. The problem is, I don't know the full scope of the fraud. So the question should be, how do we as the people determine the truth as to the scope of the harm that has been done, whether it's people coming across the border, whether it's uh, votes uh, being thrown out or not counted or false votes being inserted into the count, or is it uh, 
does it deal with COVID, and is it really as uh, uh, deadly as it is claimed to be? Well, it just so happens that if you go back and read the oaths of office of all public officials in this nation, every one of them, not one of them has an oath to which they subscribe and swear that they will tell the truth. None of them. There is, however, one group of government agents who are mandated to tell the truth. And that's your grand jurors. Every one of them have as their oath to diligently inquire and true presentment make. Not presentment make, but true presentment make. Now, when a grand jury goes out and they stick their nose into everybody's business, which they can do, nobody is immune from a grand jury inquiry. Nobody. But once they do that and they bring the evidence before them in the light of their common sense, doesn't have to, they don't have to have PhDs. They don't need PhDs. They don't need Jewish doctors. All they need is a healthy dose of common sense and somebody to show them the evidence. And once they have seen it, once they have determined, yes, this is good evidence or No, this is not good evidence. And then they weigh the evidence in the scale of their common sense, and they make a true presentment. What what have we found that we collectively understand to be the truth? Then they turn around and issue a presentment. Now the whole world knows. No, excuse me. The whole world doesn't know. That's that's a bit of an extension. But the whole world at least has a presumption of the truth being made known to them because of the oath of grand jurors. <clears throat> so imperative that everybody in this nation understand that <sighs> – Ben Franklin told us we had a they they were giving us a republic if we could keep it. But what they didn't ever tell us, what you've never been told in school, is that the con the constitutions of your state and your federal government those are nothing more than contracts. That's exactly what they are. They're contracts between all of us on this call. We are all co-contractors. And the day you turn eighteen years of age. I don't care if you were getting out of school, already out of school, or about to get out of school. You were not told that when you step out at the age of 18, you slide out a chair and sit down at a table, and you become a board of director member of two of the largest corporations in the world, the United States of America and the state of your residence. Yet and still, for some reason, cannot seem to bring ourselves together to act like rational human beings 
who are board members of large corporations. We enjoy, for some unknown reason, the drama of political, of partisan politics, political intrigue, and we have got to get beyond that. It is absolutely essential to the continuation of this republic, and that is what these good folks out in Oregon are doing, and thank God two of the petitioners are public servants. They are sitting senators in the state of Oregon House of General Assembly. So I'm, I'm really thankful for those two. That, that tells me that in the entire United States, there are two public servants. They're not politicians. Don't ever call those two politicians. They are public servants. Uh, I don't know how much time's left, but let me just hush and just in case anybody's got uh, any questions. Well, uh, Kelly, did you want to uh, chime in on that, or or did anyone else before we we bring it up? Go ahead, Kelly. Well, that was a nice intro by Paul Nelly. Um, I understand you're a retired judge, and you worked in law enforcement, sheriff's deputy, and you were chief of police, and then you just keep researching the law and helping people, and uh, I found him to be quite helpful to me. Got a little bit of Southern charm there, as you can tell from his accent. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) yeah, so. Yeah, y'all come on down. We'll sit out on the front porch and sip mint juleps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's other techniques that can be done. I don't know if we have time. Um, You were explaining in, uh, is it 28 USC or 18 uh, USC that, a when a federal crime occurs, the a judge, a magistrate, even says in the statute, a city, the, a mayor of a city can issue an arrest warrant for those who have committed a federal crime. Can you ex- expound on that a little bit? Uh, okay, yeah, you're talking about uh, Title 18 USC, and hold on just a second, I've got to try and three hundred four one. It's thirty. It's eighteen USC thirty forty one or thirty one forty one. I can't remember. Thirty. Yeah, it's thirty forty one. Anyway, while we're while we're talking, I can read it. But go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Anyway, the United States Congress, because because of eighteen USC four. Eighteen USC four is titled misprison of felony, and basically what it says is that. If you know of a federal crime and you do not reveal it to an official in the government, and it doesn't matter who the official is, it can be the military, it can be a judge, it can be a prosecutor, it can be uh, the president of the United States, or it can be a federal grand jury. But if you don't reveal it, then you are held to be liable under that law. Now, because of that, the United States Congress, uh, when they enacted uh, 18 U.S.C. 3041, they gave warrant authority to every judge in the nation. I don't care if you're a 
city recorder's court judge, a justice of the peace, a probate court judge. If you are clothed with the power of a magistrate under your state law, Congress has given you the authority to hear the evidence from the executive officers who bring an individual or bring a complaint against an individual into your court. You can hear it. You can determine the degree of probable cause, and if sufficient, issue a warrant, a federal warrant, for the arrest of that individual. And then when that warrant is issued, I'm sorry, go ahead. When the warrant is issued, then... When the warrant is issued, then the individual can be uh, bonded out, he can be put under bond, or he can be ordered held. And in any case, the result of that hearing has to be forwarded to the nearest federal court where the jurisdiction exists for the crime that was committed. All right, so here it is, 18 U.S. 3041. Section 3041, power of courts and magistrates. <clears throat> For any offense against the United States, the offender may, by any judge, justice, or judge of the United States, or by any United States magistrate judge, or by any chancellor judge of a supreme or superior court, like the county uh, superior court chief, or yep. first judge of the common pleas, mayor of a city, justice of the peace, Federal jurisdictions don't have justice of the peace, that's counties, or other magistrate of any state where the offender may be found and at the expense of the United States be arrested and imprisoned or released as provided in Chapter 207 of this title. Now, and, don't uh, overlook don't overlook that one phrase, at the expense of the United States government. Mm-hmm. Now that what that means is is if somebody steps up to a grand jury and tells the grand jury, "Hey, John Doe committed this criminal act, and here's uh, some of the evidence," and the grand jury feels like there's more evidence needing to be brought before them, they go get it, and guess who gets the bill? The United States Treasury. It don't come out of the county taxpayers' pockets. Right. Just thought I'd throw just- that in. Yeah, and then it says, copies of the process shall be returned as speedily as may be into the office of the clerk of such court. There you go. So basically, arrest warrant, put it in the system. A person can do a citizen's arrest after that, which is really interesting. That's a whole other topic for another day. And then as yeah. soon as they're arrested, the, the, these, these, uh, the warrant is taken to the clerk of the federal court. Boom. Yep, yep. Oh, 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 glad you mentioned that Uh, because I I think you'll read in – I think if you flip over to 3141 or 3142, uh, the Congress gave arrest authority to persons, not just citizens. That means if you're a sojourner in the United States, you're a – let's say you're a citizen of – of Great Britain or Germany or whatever, and you witness a federal offense that you know to be a federal offense, you can place that person under arrest and transport him immediately to the nearest federal, well, to the nearest committing magistrate. doesn't have to be federal. 
and uh, your right of arrest is protected under that U.S. Code section. So both citizens and visitors to the United States are granted arrest authority in that by the by the Congress. Just thought I'd throw that extra extraterritorial jurisdiction. No, 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 there. no, that ain't it. That ain't it. Okay, it's somewhere uh, else. Then. Okay, but basically, if you're yeah, in another country, let's say you're in Germany and somebody fled to Germany, somebody committed a federal crime that fled to Germany under extraditional, they will be transported back to the United States. So, well, yeah, if there's an extradition treaty. Right, but you've got to understand yeah, something, folks. When when you start exercising your authority under under federal or dealing with grand juries and citizens' arrest, once that becomes a common practice, you're going to see a lot of politicians vacating their seats in the legislature or in the executive branch, packing their bags and catching a plane to Brazil because we don't have extradition treaties with Brazil. That's that's. <laughs> they're going to take a long vacation from the United States, <laughs> and I, for one, will be glad to see them go. Yeah, I I know a local that did a couple citizens arrest. <clears throat> He's kind of a when around here we kind of call him a radical, but I've had thoughts of doing that <clears throat> if necessary. And you have to study your own state laws. <clears throat> California, it has to be a misdemeanor, not an infraction, and it has to be. In a public place, yeah, you got to rest. Yeah, you've got to study your your criminal statutes. Yeah, I mean, what's what's encouraging here is we're not without recourse. Absolutely, we have peaceful methods to resolve our problems because Absolutely. there is concerns. I mean, the people up in Michigan that try to arrest the governor, they're on trial. I was in the news recently. You knuckleheads, yeah. you think you're going to arrest the governor? Really? He just has to have a bigger army than you people. I was just plain stupid. But when people don't have peaceful resolve, well, JFK said it, uh, President JFK said it very well. He said, um, those who make peaceful resolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. And I yes, really applaud Dr. Ely and so many people that were trying to resolve this peacefully to prevent bloodshed and, and other idiocy things that could happen. So I have yes. to offer to Paul, uh, Mr. Nally coming on tonight, and uh, I, I, I should give up the phone line so that we let other people ask questions of okay. Mr. Nally. Standing by if there's any questions. Well, we've got uh, one of our other uh, you know, guests on. He's uh, due to chime in at uh, you know nine o'clock uh, or you know or between nine and nine thirty. But we do have him on the line, uh, and that is uh, our guest coming on, uh, Stewart. And that's uh, let's get him on uh, the show. Thank you very much, uh, Stuart, for, uh, Stuart, for coming on the show. How are you tonight? Hey, I'm good. Hey, Robert, can you hear me? I, I can hear you well. Thank you very much. Yeah, lively, uh, li- lively show tonight. Uh, as I said earlier, I know that uh, you know, gosh, there's so much going on. There's COVID, and now we've got this, you know, 
whatever it is going on, uh, you know, in Ukraine, we pay up inflation. We, <laughs> I, I tell you what, I've been, you know, following these types of things since I was 10 years old, and I, this is even worse than the Carter year. So I understand why people are out there, you know, just passionate to hide. I mean, we've been working on, on, on trying to improve things and, you know, and educate people and things of that nature for, for years now. And one thing I, I don't want to see is, you know, I mean, clearly we'll want to see the truth get out, uh, but but the people are on the same side. I mean, as I I'd, I'd love to starting show on this, you know, you know, we stand shoulder to shoulder. I've been having that talk since we've done the podcast in 2012, and and we're going to have to, or else, you know, these people that are looking to fundamentally change. Uh, America, you know, I, I, in my opinion, for the worst, they're just going to be victorious. But anyway, I just call, let you in at this point to see if you had any comments on on anything that you've heard since you've uh, called in tonight. If you had any questions for our guest, oh. uh, 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 um, you know, not not yet. Um, I was just taking it in. I missed the. Uh, I got on a. Uh, late sounds like just kind of at the tail end of uh, the last uh, controversy. Um, so, I mean, the one thing I would say, just in response to what you just said, Robert, um, and maybe uh, maybe the the speaker can can comment on this, but I think that um, one big thing we have on our side is the fact that more and more people are very conscious that the media has been lying and that the authorities have been wrong and that Amen. they've been led astray. Yeah. And I think it's, it's definitely something we should use to our favor. So I think it's actually, even though um, it's very dark, it's also a, a moment of great opportunity for, um, yes, for, for true organizers. Yes, it is. Well, yeah, certainly. I think that a lot of people have have opened their eyes. What you know, what's going on? Uh, I wonder how many people, you know, election wise, have uh, you know, you know, election wise, uh, to you know, wake up like, oh my gosh, what the heck did we vote for? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, 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 well, it's amazing. Go ahead, guys. Uh, <clears throat> well, what the people well, need to understand. If you, if you want to add something to that, Kelly, go ahead. What the people need to understand is every morning when you wake up, you are the victim of one of the largest thefts that's ever been perpetrated on this people. And I'll yield. Well, I know the second uh, talk about the media and things of that nature um, is that, you know, we're you know we're at the top of the second hour. We can work into what's going on in, in Ukraine. And there's just a lot of, you know, a, a lot going on over, you know, over there. You I mean, you see all the, you know, the, the destruction. I mean, one thing I can say is that whereas, you know, and we'll talk more about that with, you know, with our guest tonight here with Stuart, is that, you know, provoked or unprovoked or, you know, whether there was cause for Russia to, to go into uh, to Ukraine is that the fact of the matter is is they did, and, and Ukraine is a sovereign country. 
Now, what, what we're going to talk about in our next segment here is what a lot of people aren't talking about is it's Russia's actions justified. Now, at this point, you know, I'm thinking they're not. I don't, I don't know what type of provocation, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about uh, with you, Stuart, about, and if anybody wants to, you know, chime in and talk more about that. So, I mean, it is a sovereign country. I don't know, you know, so let's go ahead, Stuart, and, and it's, the, the, I, it's going to take a lot for me to be convinced that what Russia's doing has been justified. Uh, but let's go ahead and uh, bring things over to you, Stuart. Okay, sure. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I don't think it's the right question, actually, who's right and who's wrong or who's is it justified or is it unjustified. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I, I, I would like to discuss a little bit more of the of the context of that situation that yeah, hopefully can give people – yeah, I can hopefully give people a little bit. And, I mean, do you want me to just say a few kind of like – just kind of – Try to say a few things, and and uh, and then I guess we take questions after that. Is that what what you're thinking, Robert? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Just you know, you know again, we talked off the air, um, you know, on on a few things, you know. And you said I'm asking the wrong question, so I think that a good place to start is, you know, what kind of questions should we be asking, and then kind of fill those out on, you know, why those should be the questions, you know, what are those questions, and why should those be the questions, you know, we're asking, because. I want to know what is, is true. I mean, <laughs> I, think, I, I mean, seriously, that's why this is yeah, called Bard's Logic instead absolutely. of, you know, not Robert's show, because it's supposed to be about information for, or, you know, our audience. Um, and we, we certainly want to have, you know, what the truth is out there. Not to try yeah, yeah. to use anything okay. from the X-Files, but go ahead. <laughs> sure. Um, so the um, – so the thing I'd like to say just to start it off with is that it's actually not a Ukraine or Russia crisis. Um, it's a, it's actually a crisis in the world order. And um, the Russians have said that very clearly, which is interesting. Um, when Putin launched the, the war in Ukraine, he actually said, um, he started talking about Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, which were, of course, NATO wars. Um, so now, but, but, you know, before people, like I said, I don't think people should think about it from the context of, you know, the West versus the authoritarian regimes, because that's the pitfall that's been set by the, the, the neoliberal media, um, for people to, to, to fall back to, um, well, we like freedom and they're a bunch of communist dictatorships, um, you know, or, 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 or um, you know, neo-imperial powers, you know, China wants to reestablish a um, China empire and Russia wants to, um, you know, establish Novorossiya, which is, you know, the, the old Soviet Union concept. And that's just a narrative which is being pumped. And it's, I just want to, you know, say that people should be conscious of that. Um, so, what do I mean when I say it's about the world order? When, uh, so I've worked with Lyndon LaRouche for 15 years. Um, what's unique about Lyndon LaRouche is that he's, he forecast in 1971 when the dollar was taken off the gold reserve system by Nixon that 
the 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 trajectory of that would lead to a systemic economic breakdown because it would favor speculative profits and at the same time the collapse of physical productive capabilities of the, of the world of any part of the world that adopted it which has virtually been pretty much everywhere and that would lead to the kind of situation where if those in power attempted to save their system, even at the expense of what would invariably be the the death of people and whole nations, you know, basically austerity and um, fascism in order to save their system, in order to roll over more debts, in order to bail out the, you know, people, banking asset there was um, then you would you would be confronted with you know a, a systemic crisis um, I think it's reflected in what um, the former um, speaker was was talking about um, but you know and there's people may be familiar with that there's a lot of words people use like the globalists and the deep state and and, uh, and various things the imperialists you know people use a lot of words to describe it um, now, what that so first of all, that's occurring um, since 2008. The bailout of the system never stopped. 2019, the bailout took off again. Quantitative easing took off again. It accelerated under COVID, of course. Um, what what happened kind of under the radar was that um, now. I don't want to go to <laughs> – I know I'm not talking about Ukraine anymore, but let me say a couple more things just to set the context, and maybe we can come back to no, it. No, that's so, fine. we got um, plenty of time. Uh, forgive me for that. we got plenty of time, Sarah. Okay, cool. So what happened under the radar, maybe not under the radar for some of your listeners, but um, was the, the Great Reset, otherwise known as like the Global Green New Deal, which is green energy everywhere, uh, Shut down carbon emissions, coal, oil, gas, and we're going to do the the renewable revolution in the next ten or fifteen years or whatever it is. Um, as part of that, was the absolute takeover of the financial system by the world's leading um, fi- private financial institutions, um, biggest you know banks in the world and uh, central banks, you know, largely Western central banks. Um, and this was what was discussed at Davos. Um, Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England, called for a financial regime change. Uh, that's the terms he used, I think, uh, sometime in 2020. Um, so the, this great reset was has been rolling out. The argument is no nation can be sovereign anymore this has been this has been the case since 9-11 as people probably know about it was the excuse for the 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 wars in the middle east and and various other things but now it's global warming it's climate change no nation can can control their economy if it means hurting the the environment and so so mark carney and others that this kind of great reset crowd said we're going to prohibit anyone, any country, um, and any company from investing in, you know, in coal, oil, gas, any fossil fuels. Um, we're going to restrict uh, international credit 
to any company that, that does that. So anyways, the reason I say that many people on this show might already have a sense of this, of course, Trump, um, in a very good way, pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord right after he came in in 2017, which is, which is very good. Um, the, since, since then, and there was a big COP26 climate summit in, in Scotland last in October, November, the, since, since then what's emerged is a major international opposition to this push that has been led by Russia, China, and India. And, and various other so-called developing nations around the world. Most of the countries in Africa, most of the countries in South, Central and South, South America, especially, um, who are saying, sorry, we're not doing this. I don't care what threats you give us. We care about helping our people over a bunch of carbon emission goals. Like, what good does it do us to have clean air when our people are dying from malaria or starvation, you know, so that's, so anyways, but Russia and China were the, were the big keys to this thing. And they, they asserted that we are, we, we don't agree. They might, they might, you know, say a few things about green energy every here and, you know, now and again, but by and large, they've opposed it on the grounds of their right to development. Um, so, I just want to say that because that's that's what the context is of what happened in this Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, now, to go back to a little more specifically, um, now of course, what just to say that they should be our natural allies. There's nothing communist or authoritarian or or evil empire <laughs> kind of thing in in an assertion of the right to development of your nation and your people. Um, that's, that's totally coherent with what the United States in our best moments uh, <clears throat> upheld. And it, it'd be a natural ally, allies of, of ours to, to do so. Um, and there's enormous media attempts to, you know, to get Americans to think otherwise. Now what's happening in Ukraine is, is, um, is is very different, or it's not different, but it's it's um it's it's a little more. There's a few more things to say, which is that in 2013, 2014, the former Ukrainian government, two former Ukrainian governments ago, was in debating, was in was in dialogue about whether or not to join the European Union, the European Union um, Open Market um, Committee, or whatever it is, treaty. Um, they realized at a certain point in the debates that this was going to be disastrous for the Ukrainian economy. Of course, they mostly traded with Russia, being largely part of the Soviet Union for decades. Um, and so they, so he declined it, um, Yanukovych. He declined it. Immediately upon his decision to decline it, um, the United States came in pumping billions of dollars into um, – media campaigns in Ukraine into radio stations, TV stations, opposition parties, NGOs. If people know George Soros and what Soros's main thing is called the uh, Open Society Foundation, the Open Society was majorly involved in uh, pumping up protests in 
in Ukraine in 2013-2014. This led into um, really a, a very violent um, uh, protest for, for a couple months or so. A um, number of people were killed, and, uh, and the government was, was overthrown in a coup. And there's, there's, there's more that can be said about that, but it was a coup. The, the, the um, Eastern European uh, desk at the U.S. State Department under Obama said, bragged about how we, we spent $5 billion for regime change in Ukraine in 2014. So immediately upon this new government coming in, which um, a lot of people don't want to talk about it anymore, but there were far-right radicals. There were neo-Nazis. Um, the Western media spoke about it back in 2014, 2015, 2016, even up to 2018. Um, but then since the last couple of years, it's become taboo. They're saying, well, you can't, the neo-Nazi, that's just a Putin narrative. Um, no, there, there, are, there are Nazis in Ukraine. There's Nazis in a lot of parts in Eastern Europe. It's, it's not you know, it's not surprising the, the Eastern European countries, by and large, were opposed to the Soviet Union, and there was many networks that, that went with uh, the Nazis during World War II. Um, Ukraine happened to be one that was um, sorry, one that was a little bit more intense because when this uh, coup happened in 2014, the the radicals were the major force that was responsible for the, for the revolution, for the armed coup. Um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very wild quote from one of the uh, principals in one of the major groups recently, which is interesting to read. People are definitely not going to hear it in the media, where he bragged that if it wasn't for us, the Nazis, in the Maidan you know, coup in 2014, it would have been a big gay parade. And, you know, it was the Nazis who got stuff done. So, anyways, that, this, this has been, um, it's been a, a tough situation. Um, but instead of getting down into the details of that, because, of course, this is what Putin has responded to, um, there have been 13 or 14,000 people killed in eastern Ukraine the last eight years in this um, in the war over there, Ukrainians, not, not Russians, but Ukrainians have been killed uh, fighting each other. Um, but the, the, the reason I wanted to say the first part is that if you don't consider the fact that the, the, the world order, the neoliberal world order, which, which is, is bankrupt, it has been since increasingly since 2000, you know, 2007, 2008, um, is insanely pushing every nation in the world, trying to force, trying to blackmail every nation in the world to go green or die, which of course means die, because if you go shut down all your coal and oil and gas, you will die, you will freeze, or or whatever, you'll starve. Um, most most anybody that knows anything about production knows that, <laughs> who doesn't live in a bubble knows that you can't survive on solar panels and windmills. Um, Russia and China certainly know that. And they've asserted their, their right to oppose that 
that order, that, that what they call the unipolar world order. Um, so it's actually not really right to say, you know, Ukraine's a sovereign nation and Russia violated the sovereignty of Ukraine. Sure, that is, there's some truth in that. I'm not going to argue that Putin, I'm not even going to touch, you know, it's not the issue, with the, is, is Putin right or wrong? Because war is terrible. People killing each other is absolutely terrible. This is, this is terrible. But from the standpoint of what has been done to push in the direction for years of a, of a NATO buildup, um, all the Americans who were involved in the negotiations when the Soviet Union collapsed have said repeatedly that there were guarantees given to the Soviets, the Russians, that NATO would not expand eastward. Um, the Russians have seen five waves of NATO expansion since 1990. Um, Ukraine not only was talking about joining NATO, but Zelensky was talking about the right to um, become a nuclear power again, just uh, just in December, January, which is terrifying for, you know, for anybody, but especially for Russia when you have a, a state like that. Um, that is overtly anti-Russian on can your I, borders. Can I interject a little um, bit real quick? Because I do have a question on that, though, uh, Stuart. Sure. Is that, no, and I, I mean, I can understand where Russia would have, uh, you know, some consternation about that, certainly. But a couple of things. I mean, we had that concern over two things. One, we had that concern over the Cuban Missile Crisis, but we didn't invade Cuba. And then secondly, is that, you know, Ukraine does not have a history, unlike Russia, of going into sovereign territory and attacking and taking over. I mean, look at uh, during the Obama administration when, you know, Putin and Russia came into the Crimea. I mean, look at Georgia. I mean, I would get I would understand if Ukraine had a history of, you know, going into a, a, a sovereign land or, or, or launching weapons or attacks on another country, but the, the, I mean, where's the history on that that gives them the, uh, they can, I mean, I, I, again, I understand the consternation, but for them to take to the point where they invade a sovereign land over it, you know, when there's, well, there's not a history unlike Russia, I mean, Russia has a history. I mean, Russia went to four or five years ago plus, you know, into Crimea, so they have a history of invading other, you know, other lands. Well, the gentleman yield. Was it a well, I was, well, can uh, I answer Robert's question? Or, yeah, let, yeah, or, let, yeah, go ahead. Uh, let him answer first. Yeah, because let's, let's do this in order. Let him answer first okay. uh, to me, and then, and then yeah, go ahead, uh, Mr. Nowler, Paul. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the um, – I'm glad you brought up the Cuban missile situation because it, it, it's a very, it's a, it's a very similar situation. Um, and, and yeah, there were actually many people who wanted to invade Cuba. It was only thanks to Kennedy that, that I, and, I, and his brother, I think that we didn't, and we, we might not be here if, if we did. So um, it is true. Um, it is a very dangerous situation. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the first one to say we're, we're in a, a world war kind of situation. Um, but what has not been said, uh, what's not been discussed in the media is that 
um, you have to you have to kind of look at the progression of it. If you take what I was saying about the NATO expansion since 1990, in 2007, Putin at the Munich Security Conference gave a very expansive speech saying that we we can we can only tolerate a world that that unilaterally uh, declares war and doesn't follow rules of state sovereignty for so long. He was, of course, referring to the, you know, the overreach of sovereignty in in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, This was repeatedly said by the Russians when we withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, many different um, missile treaties, um, START, INF treaty. There was, there's a lot of conflict over this for years. It's, so it's, it's been stated that these are red lines that we really don't want you to cross. And every one of them has been crossed up to the point that, including Romania, Lithuania, Poland, all having NATO missile installations. So it, it already is very similar to a Cuban Missile Crisis for, for years, um, with Russia complaining every step of the way. In December, what Russia... Russia made two um, written proposals to, to, the NATO, to NATO and to the U.S. saying we, we really need guarantees that Ukraine is not going to be brought into NATO because that is something we, you know, that, that is the Cuban Missile Crisis. We cannot accept it if you put, you know, American and NATO installments there. We cannot accept that. Um, they were ignored. They were laughed at and told you're being paranoid. So, so you know, so the fact that that was done, again, it's not about taking sides. It's it's to understand the 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 flaming of the fire is what's actually been done by um, by this kind of uh, neoliberal world order crowd, and it's it's exactly because there is major major breaks and cracks in the acceptance of their system on a global scale. And, and, and for there to be, so basically what you're looking at is the need to intimidate anybody that doesn't say, yes, sir, you know, I accept what you want. Um, You know, that's, that's really what, what we're trying to do with, with Ukraine. Um, is 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 we actually don't want to to stop the war. Um, Ukraine has actually been having somewhat small breakthroughs in negotiations and ceasefires the last the last week or two, but um, every international actor, which includes like the Israeli Prime Minister um, and and many other people who are doing interesting things, the former president of Germany was over meeting with Putin. All the people that are trying to negotiate for a ceasefire and a peace, which which largely includes the concept of a neutral Ukraine, like Switzerland or something like that, um, is the is the example being given. All the people negotiating a peace are being attacked as sympathizers for Putin. So that's why I'm saying it's not about caring about the people of Ukraine. And we should be careful what narratives are swirling around us that are attempting to suck us into them because if we really cared about the people of Ukraine and if we really cared about sovereignty, then we would be doing something far different than, you know, discussing a no-fly zone and, 
disregarding the fact that for decades, Russia has been saying this exact, you know, they've been saying you are pushing us in this direction if you don't stop. And the real United States should recall our better self around a universal mission for the, 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 the right to development and prosperity for every citizen in the world. That's what I, I think actually the, the only way to resolve it. What we're calling on just to say, and then I'll let the other gentleman speak, is that um, we do need a, a new security architecture worldwide, um, particularly a new security and economic development architecture, which is the only way we can truly resolve the situation. Thank you, young man. But I'm going to be just a bit more forceful than you are. And that is that the Ukraine is getting precisely what it deserves. Now, why would I say that? Well, thank y'all for bringing up the analogy with the Cuban Missile Crisis, because that was an exercise of the Monroe Doctrine. The problem is, between Soviet, between Russia and the Ukraine, there is a Gulf of Mexico. So Putin is sitting there looking at one-third of his eastern border already faced with NATO. And if Ukraine should go with NATO, then his entire eastern border is threatened by a military force, a significant military force. Now, if the United States can exercise the Monroe Doctrine to send our battleships and our submarines into the Gulf to sink incoming ships bearing missiles, then if he doesn't have a Gulf of Mexico where he can use a Navy to stop NATO from encroaching into his border, right up to his border, the only alternative he has is an armed military incursion. But it goes a little bit beyond that. Please give me, please give me this one example. Well, yeah, again, uh, you know, again, uh, Paul, is that show me where, I mean, uh, my, my point was, I mean, and I, as I said, I understand their consternation, their fear, whatever people are stating, but my point is, is where has NATO, I mean, come on, NATO's been around for a long time. Where has NATO ever threatened an offensive against anyone in another in a sovereign country, when when has that happened? What gives them you know? So what gives them cause for that? Whereas you have Russia, you know, I, I think it makes more sense for them to increase you know the influence of NATO. And I'm not a big fan of NATO, but however, you know, if there's been aggression in history, you know, yeah, we've had our aggressions too. I'm not I'm not discounting that. But what I'm stating is that, you know, we're talk, if you want to talk about Iraq, things of that nature, which they thought there was provocation, we could go on that more later. However, 
I mean, has Poland ever, you know, invaded a country? Has Turkey, you know, I mean, has Ukraine? I mean, Russia went in, you know, and, and invaded a sovereign country. That, that's where I'm having the biggest problem. They invaded. You know, now Russia, if they would be, a, you know, defend themselves because they're invaded, certainly. But tell me, yeah, he lost the Eastern Bloc. You know, but but tell me where there was a, a military incursion, you know, to do to do that. You talk about an, an incursion. Well, where 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 has Russia been militarily attacked? Well, where has that happened? Okay. Or when has that happened? Okay. And also, remember, I want to wait a minute. I want to pick up one one thing. We we'll talk about Obama. Remember, it was Obama who told Medvedev that, hey, wait till after my uh, election. And I'll have more flexibility about the missile shield that was supposed to be in Poland, you know, you know, for those the missiles, you know, the missile shield out there. So, and and he ended up not doing it. You know, Obama ended up not putting the missile shield there in Poland. So, and then again, you have Trump for four years. I mean, that, that's something else. But anyway, go to the, for the for the first question. Okay, so, well, let's where, get where back the to the. Of the doing that? Well, let's get to the let's get to the attacks on Russia. I will grant you that NATO itself has not. But as you're well aware, there are ways to use puppets to obtain an objective. And what I'm talking about here is the Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 accords. You see, there are two obelisks I believe is what the term is given to counties in the Ukraine. And both of them sit right up against Russia, the DNR and the LNR. And according to the Minsk Accords back in 2015, those two were supposed to be allowed to vote whether or not they wanted independence or go with Russia or stay with the Ukraine. A year and a half ago, they finally went ahead and conducted a vote without the sanction of the Ukraine parliament. And they voted to go independent. Did the Ukraine comply with that popular vote? No, they haven't. They've, they have just kept right on lobbing shells over at the dissidents. And the dissidents are lobbing shells at the Ukraines. And finally, here's the question. How many times can you poke a bear before it gets enough of it and turns around and swats the hell out of you? Well, apparently, that time came when Putin crossed that border. He exercised the Putin doctrine, which is the equivalent of our Monroe doctrine. He is not going to tolerate two-thirds of his border coming under NATO influence. And he's making it plain as hell, as far as I'm concerned, that he does not tolerate a threat on his border, a threat a country away he might can tolerate that. You know, I'm sitting here looking at the Ukraine, and when this new uh, uh, Ukraine president came in, right at the very beginning of his tenure, 
I understand that there are some sources that say he almost got that uh, problem with the DNR and the LNR uh, satisfied, and then he was influenced by some people internal to Ukraine not to do it, and he backed off. Well, this is his reward for backing off and not complying with the Minsk Accord. So like I said, right now, I got no sympathy for the Ukraine. They are getting exactly so what, what they deserve. So what, what do you so what do you make of and then what have uh, yourself and then uh, to Stewart to re- reply? And I know we can't always rely on the report, uh, but one of the reports I want to you know want to talk on is you know the reports of you know maternity wards and you know, children's hospitals that are being attacked. I mean, these aren't, these aren't military installations, and they're also using, you know, the concussion. <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly what type of bombs are used, um, but, the, you know, kind of bombs that not only the explosion, but the, actually the concussive force, you know, from, from the bombs themselves, literally to, like, rip people apart. It's not even well, the explosion uh-huh. itself. It's, it's, it's those okay, type of bombs on. On, on civilians. Hold on. Now, let me explain something to you. (laughs) News reporters, people get all upset when you start talking about, oh, these poor innocent civilians. Oh, these poor innocent civilians. They're getting bombed. They're getting killed. There is no such thing as an innocent citizen. In this nation, as I explained a while ago, every dang citizen in this country has a seat at the table of the board of directors. Now, you can manage that government, or you can go out and play golf and let the government take care of itself. That ain't smart. The same thing applies in the Ukraine. They elected this man. He almost did the right thing, according to the Minsk Accord, and then he backed off. Well, why didn't they recall him? Why didn't the people recall him? Get him out of office. Get the people that influenced him to do the wrong thing. Get him out of office. It's their job to manage their government. So and there's nobody we, well, in let, let me back up. Let me back up on that, uh, Paul. Yeah, and, and, Except and you the make children. A good point. Wait, 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 but you make a good point. But let, let, let me reiterate with this, and then I want to bring in Stuart. Is that okay? I think the United States is a great example of that. I mean, we've had four years of Trump trying to clean the swamp, or I like to call it a cesspool. We both know, and I think everyone on this call knows, how difficult it is for the common citizen. Let's be honest. The common citizenry to change their government. I mean, I mean and I'm going to use this as a, as a small example. We've known about the, corrupt, uh, we've known about the corruption easily – probably even longer than this since the 40s. I mean, come on, they made a movie about it. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and that was made in, what, 1943? I mean, that's, what, 80 years ago we talk about government corruption, and and then you have President Trump, who one of his calling cards was to get rid of the the corruption in Washington, D.C., and somehow, you know, almost half the country was convinced that he was the one who was corrupt. I mean, talk about the citizenry, it's the, it's the fault of the citizenry 
I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with that because how hard have people been trying? People not, you know, if you have someone like Donald Trump who can't, and let's be honest, he didn't, you know, you know clean the swamp, as he said, and what, if someone of that stature in that position can't do it, what makes people think that the citizenry, you know, yeah, can do it? I mean, to, to, to blame the citizenry, you know, I, I think I think that's unfounded. I mean, it's not easy to remove people. I mean, look at the recall over in California. So the you know because you know Gavin Newsom wasn't recalled because you know the people didn't recall him out of California. So that means that the citizenry. Even those who voted to recall them, that they should suffer because of that? They tried. They just didn't succeed, and most of the time we don't. An example, we've tried here in my area four times, you know, getting thousands of, of, of signatures to put on a petition for a bill here in Ohio called House Bill 248. Four or five times these signatures and this new petition has been taken in front of the attorney general of Ohio to be, and they've even had, you know, constitutional lawyer, all kinds of lawyers on this thing, and it's continually getting put down. What they want to do is they want to be put on an Ohio ballot so the voters can vote on whether people can be discriminated against for not getting vaccinated, whether companies can force people to not get vaccinated. Four times this Republican, you know, and whether it was a Democrat, they turned it down too, uh, the Attorney General wow. turned down turned down the petition. So to, to try to make it out like, oh well, this is just something that's our fault because we just we we ain't doing it. We're trying. It's just the, the, you know it's really stacked against us. That's why I think the they want to get the military to be so compliant is because anyway well, that that's a, for a different day. But it, it's not you know people well, are suffering. And it's not the it's not the fault of the citizenry. It's not for them not. You know, a good portion of people not trying. Just look at our guest, uh, you know, tonight, uh, Ely, on what he's trying to do. Um, but anyway, go ahead, Paul. And then I, then I want to bring Stuart back in. Okay. Uh, let me just, before I hush, let me just suggest that the next time you get a itch you want to scratch, you don't do it with the political uh, scratcher. You take your problem to your grand jury, a fully, find you a fully informed grand jury, people who know or can be taught quickly the scope of the power of a grand jury, and let them tell the state legislature, just like the, just like the grand jury did down in Chatham County, Georgia in 1791. They didn't ask the grand jury, they didn't ask the state legislature to indict them. They told them to indict the malefactors. And the legislature complied. Why? Now, that's not the only case in the state of Georgia. There's another case in Liberty County where a grand jury told the governor, get rid of our sheriff. Uh, the governor complied. The grand jury, you've got to understand the scope of the power of that organization. Those are your neighbors. You don't need their signatures on a petition. You need their signature, the foreman's signature, on a presentment to the legislature. Now, that is something that your legislators will listen to. Yeah, they'll ignore you. They'll ignore 100 of you on a, sign, uh, on a signed petition. They will not ignore one grand jury. 
and I'll, yeah, I'll we, yield, we, we but we can get back to this. But, but, yeah, let's go ahead and get back to you, Stuart. Thank you. Sure, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, no, there's, there's a lot of good questions here, a lot of topics that we could take up. I'll, um, I'll try to mention two things. One, just kind of a technical thing uh, for the record, the uh, – that that you had asked earlier, Robert and um, and Dan had started the answer. Uh, Crimea Crimea wasn't really an invasion by by Russia. Um, they also did vote. Um, they did have a referendum, um, and uh, and they voted to to leave Ukraine and join Russia. And that was um, that was done. People can say it's illegitimate. Um, I don't think they have any evidence of it, uh, but you know that's. That's, um, now you're talking about the that, Ukraine. That, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Crimea. Crimea, back in 2014 yeah. or 15 or whatever it was. But yes, um, yeah. So I, you know, I just wanted to to make a note of that. It really was. It, it really is a, a a vast stretch to say that it was an invasion by by Russia. Um, the other thing, just to just to say, actually, on the tech on the technical side, um, and uh, Robert, actually, we had talked about this. Uh, I guess over text maybe earlier in the week or last week, but um, you know about the the propaganda. I mean, we are you're dealing with war propaganda, so yes. let's just accept that. You know the stuff about maternity wards and kindergartens, yeah. all the stuff. Um, it is part of is part of war propaganda, um, and it, it, it you should expect that there's going to be inaccuracies on both sides. Um, what had happened about a week or maybe a week and a half ago was the Zaporizhna nuclear power plant um, that was supposedly bombed and caught on fire by Russia, by the Russian troops, and it was threatening to unleash a new, new Chernobyl, and, you know, millions of people were going to be radiated and blah, blah, blah. You know, Biden put out a special statement, and, you know, it hit headlines for about 12 hours or 24 hours. What ended up being the case is that there wasn't actually a fire at the nuclear power plant at all. Um, the nuclear power plant had been held by Russian troops for like almost a week before the fire took place. The fire took place in an administrative building somewhat nearby. It was a training center that was set. It was that was occupied by um, some some ultra you know ultra right kind of nationalists as part of the Ukraine army um, who had set fire to the place in order to uh, prevent Russia from, you know, having it. Um, and it, it was a totally different story. It, it ended up being used <laughs> to get a totally different thing. Um, so that's just a factor that you want to be careful of. Um, and we, you know, we're we putting out a, we we put out a great intelligence service for people know, um, which you know I can plug that have, at a certain point. We have and I have another point, that, but Dan's going to say something, so go ahead. We have to understand that Goebbels is still alive. Yeah, Goebbels is still alive. I'm, I'm guessing you're talking figuratively, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope so. Propaganda is going to go on. Elvis? I'm just kidding, Paul. Go ahead. Just trying to answer a second. You definitely have a lot of gobbles. Gobblers are still alive. 
No, um, yeah, clarify that. Yeah, then, what, you, what you mean by that? What was that? No, go, go ahead, sir. Okay. Yes, yeah, sir. What? Um, the other thing I was just I wanted to to add in here is that um, we uh, there there has to be an economic uh, portion of of any solution. Um, Back in when the Soviet Union was was collapsing, Lyndon LaRouche proposed what was called the Eurasian Triangle, which was to um, to link the uh, the manufacturing hubs of Paris, Berlin, and Vienna, which of course in the in the 1980s were 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 actually serious powerhouses of um, the most dense machine tool activity in the world. And to use that as kind of a um, uh, through osmosis, I guess, but to to use that potential into Eastern Europe, into the former Soviet bloc, to not just allow these former Soviet countries to to, to dilapidate and to be kind of loosely brought into so-called free market economics or some crap like that, but you know, to affect what they did, and and you see the results, um, a lot of poverty, but instead to to use the tech, the capability, use the productive capability and and know-how, um, and skill to to leapfrog these, you know, these former so, so Soviet um, communist economies up to, um, a, you know, twentieth twenty first century standard, and have that be the basis for a new agreement among leading nations in the world of what's what's a common interest. What is that? What is in our our mutual interests between all, which would be to you know basically spread the the boon of of technological and scientific and industrial advancement to, to every citizen. Um, now, what was done instead? Of course, Lyndon LaRouche was thrown in prison. Um, framed up on fraudulent charges. That's a whole other story we can talk about some other time. But um, George Bush Sr. declared victory over communism, said this is the proof that, that capitalism succeeded over communism. And for C, which is crap, because everybody here can see what happened with, you know, simply going with bailouts and you know the so-called capitalist system, um, which is which has not delivered much to the majority of Americans. Um, and instead, what we did was, in the name of liberal democracy and capitalism, we didn't bring machine tools and manufacturing and the the you know high-tech sector to to the former Soviet states and to Russia. We brought liberal financial policies. We brought privatization. Um, we brought deindustrialization. So for the entire period of the 90s, not only did Russia and these countries, former Soviet countries, um, plummet, because what basically happened is private money could come in, they could buy up a factory, they could sell off all the machines, machines and machine tools within the factory, make a killing, 
and then, you know, basically liquidate the whole thing and move on to the next one. And so the 90s was horrific for Russia. And what happened in addition to the mass destruction of, of this, um, you know, this productive capacity was infant mortality skyrocketed, drug and, and alcohol addiction skyrocketed, life expectancy plummeted by like almost 10 years, diseases skyrocketed. All the things you would expect. There was a guy who was a friend of ours, um, still is a friend of ours, named Sergei Glaziev, a Russian economist, who wrote a book called Genocide um, about this subject, which is just horrifying in terms of what was done in the name of, of capitalism and liberal democracy. So um, what has always been the potential and really what I think the situation today presents is there has to be a, a reckoning with this economic perspective, which of course is the antithesis of the, of the Great Reset and the Green New Deal, which says consume less, produce less. Um, some people say populate less, you know, get rid of a few billion people on the planet, which is of course not helpful, not very productive either. But um, but that's where that's where you can actually bring together a a, a conflict, a series of conflicting nations, like what you have in the Caucasus and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet states, and say, look, we're going to build um, modern nuclear power plants. We're going to build modern high-speed rail systems. We're going to build modern industrial parks, and you know, we're going to we're going to go with the the latest in, um, you know, uh, nanotechnology. Um, plasma technology. I mean, you know, just unleash the the economic development perspective, which has always been waiting in the wings if we don't let the world's financial elite intentionally try to bankrupt and loot the productivity of, of nations. Um, and that is, is more necessary today than it ever has been. So I wanted to say that too. And, and real quick, two things. Kelly's got a report for us, but first, uh, for those of us, or either you, not us, for those of you who are listening online, uh, for instance, uh, I know there's many, but I'll mention one in particular, Tori. Uh, I know you guys are listening online, but if you want to listen to the next hour, which we lovingly call Bard's Logic After Dark, uh, you'll need to give us a call at 347-945-7428, and then you'll be able to listen to the third hour. Uh, if you don't uh, call in, then, well, you still are able to listen to the rest of uh, what we'll say tonight on the program by listening to the, the podcast or the recording, which, of course, you can get on many, including iHeartRadio, I, you know, iApple Tunes, things of that nature, um, CastBox, and, you know, just many ways you can listen to the, the show, uh, you know, podcast-wise. But if you want to listen to it live, maybe even chime in, uh, call us again at uh, 347-945-7428. And uh, you'll be able to listen to the remainder of the, the program live. And, again, but there also uh, will be the podcast available uh, afterwards. But let's go ahead and bring Kelly in real quick and get his report, and then we'll uh, bring things back to our roundtable uh, discussion. So thank you very much, uh, Kelly, for uh, coming back to the show. You've got the fair, and we'll you know, maybe talk briefly on that or maybe even at length. We've got about another hour. So go ahead, Kelly. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm <clears> – <throat> Interesting to hear other perspectives. My mother always taught me there's two sides to every story. I don't know everything about Russia and Ukraine other than I think 
uh, Putin has invaded the Ukraine to get a risk card. But uh, that was meant to be funny. All right. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So I got this report. Um, let's see. Russian lawmakers. This is from American Military News. And it says Russian lawmaker demands U.S. hand over Alaska and, and part of California as reparations. A Russian law. This is on this. This is today, by the way. So a Russian lawmaker is demanding reparations from the United States for the Biden administration's economic sanctions, including the return of Alaska and a portion of California. This is a quote. We should be thinking about reparations. <laughs> I know reparations. Really? Okay. I mean, hey, you want to take the Bay Area? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, this is the American military news. All right, we should be thinking about reparations from the damage that was caused by the sanctions and the war itself, because that, too, cost money, and we should get it back. That's Federal Assembly of Russian member Oleg Matveyev. How do you pronounce a Russian name? Matveyev, I think, said on Russian state television on Sunday, according to the Daily Mail. Quote, the return of all Russian properties, those of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and current Russia, which has been seized in the United States and so on, he continued. And so there's a fort north of, of uh, San Francisco, and it says they Fort Ross. It belongs to Russia, and so does Alaska. Well, they can't think this Russian kind of forgot that uh, uh, President Johnson's administration paid $7.2 million for uh, – Alaska in 1867. Many people called that Seward's Folly. And then the American yeah. company established Fort Ross, and then uh, they sold the settlement to private individuals. But it was a Russian-American company, and they sold to private individuals. But there, um, the sanctions that are going about, of course, uh, from the Biden administration includes vodka. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Why is Putin <laughs> – why is Biden – why are they stopping – the importation of vodka. I mean, comrade, come on. Biden wants to turn us into socialists and communists. If that's the case, we need the vodka, comrade. We should, you know, <laughs> we, we, should, we should go into business and buy truckloads of vodka, stand on the street corners, and here you go, comrade. You know, <clears throat> I don't understand stopping uh, vodka from coming in by the, our communist Biden. I don't get it, but. Anyway, I just thought that news report was rather interesting. So I yield back to you, Robert. <laughs> well, I mean, did you want to you want to cover that there, Stuart? <laughs> I mean, I, well, I mean, people thought, well, I got know, a better on, idea. On a ser- well, on a ser- real quick, uh, Stuart, on a serious note, uh, yeah, I mean, what wh- what would we do if they started to, you know, you know, do an incursion in, in Alaska? Might sound far fetched, but you know we're—I mean, we're the, you know we're right on their border, right? Alaska's you know right across the strait <laughs> uh, to Russia. So who knows? Maybe they'll—I'm—I'm I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek, but I mean perhaps it's a possibility, um, you know, for that. Uh, so you know, I don't know we, we talk about you know you know people being right up against the you know the, the Russian border. Uh, and then there's another point I wanted to make, but I'll be honest, it kind of that that joke there about the 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 vodka there, uh, Kelly, uh, that, that was funny. But yeah, that's true. Um, I know somebody who works in the 
in the liquor store, and yeah, they're just removing all of it. But go ahead, uh, if you want to speak on that, uh, Stuart, go ahead. Oh, yeah, well, real quick. Well, actually, I remembered. Remember, okay. we could talk about this maybe later, but remember when uh, Trump uh, either was serious or jokingly was talking about buying Greenland. Personally, I don't think that was a bad idea from Trump. But anyway, go ahead, Stuart. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we should we should we should develop it. I bet they got some some resources and Denmark's certainly not doing much. Anyways, um no, I was going to I mean, what we should do with Alaska is we should connect the two as a trade corridor. It's a natural just look at a map. Look at any map or better yet, look at a look at a globe because you can't really see it on a map, but Alaska and Siberia are only 50 miles or so apart. And um, there's every reason in the world to connect them. And it would be a peace, a peace initiative too. It would help, you know, it would be good. It would be, it would be fun and it would be a, a wonderful opportunity to develop resources in the Arctic from both sides. Um, but no, the, the, the other thing to say is that this, um, I've been following Putin for many years um, and this, what the attempt is to get people is kind of what I've been saying, which is that there's an attempt to get, to drum up a narrative um, in, in to influence the way people think, which is unspoken. It's always how these things work. It's, it's, it's what um, it's the assumptions that you make, which aren't necessarily spoken by by, you know, media and, and other, um, you know, where we get our, our news and ideas from, that is actually how we think. And that's what I think you're kind of hearing, and a lot of people are hearing, which is that, well, maybe Putin's going to invade Poland next, or he's going to invade, um, you know, the Baltic states, or, you know, all of Eastern Europe could be invaded. And it's like, what, you know, I was getting my hair cut a couple of weeks ago and some guy came into the barber shop and said, no, Putin's a madman. He's going to try to take over the world and blow up, start blowing off nuclear weapons. And it's, 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 it's just not true. It's the influence of decades of Hollywood culture that make, you know, kind of fantastical stories of, of the bad guy and the crazy psychopath. Um, they did the same thing with Kim Jong-un and Trump usefully called that out and said, look, this, you know, this guy is, there's a reason he's doing the things he's doing and you just have to talk to him. You know, that, that could be another subject. Maybe I don't want to go there, but um, that, that's just not true. Um, Putin has been saying the same thing about Ukraine for over a decade. Um, there's no, there has not been a change, it's, and he's not been saying it about any other country. He certainly has not been saying it about Alaska. I have no doubt that there's some hardliner Russians that think we should invade Alaska. Um, uh, you know, that's unfortunately the situation we're in. That if we flame tensions, um, you better believe there are hard more hard, there are much more hardline people in Russia than Putin who would not hesitate to launch a nuclear weapon. And, and we better think twice before we instigate a no-fly zone or send jets via Poland to Ukraine um, because there are people that Putin is trying to keep at bay who would very much like to um, do much more extreme things. So, um, But no, Putin is not trying to 
take over the world. It's 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 a silly idea. Um, it would it would lead to nuclear war. And um, there's been no evidence to support that he's actually thinking about that. Now, one thing before I bring it over to, I mean, kind of the same topic. It's, it's definitely at least in, in my mind related. Uh, but I want to see if uh, if you want to come in uh, some more about that, Paul or, or or Kelly. And then I want to bring up uh, Taiwan and how what's going on in Ukraine can possibly affect what uh, China decides to do over in Taiwan. Again, it's, it's separate, but I still I still think it's. Uh, you know, it is uh, tied with, with what's going on in Ukraine. But uh, uh, Paul or Kelly, did you want to make any comments on that or have anything else you want to bring up before we uh, introduce that? If I may, uh, first off, I would like to thank uh, Mr. Stewart. I really enjoyed listening to him this evening, and I thank you for this program. Unfortunately, well, it, is, it is time for this 76-year-old to go view the roadmaps on the insides of his eyelids. So I have enjoyed it immensely, and I thank you. Oh, you're welcome. We appreciate it. We hope to, you know, have you back on the show. We'll certainly have you back on. So, Kelly, do you want to address anything before we uh, talk about what this could be the ramifications for Taiwan? Well, it looks like uh, China is providing – that's one little news headline I saw that China is going to be providing military aid to Russia. Um, is Taiwan next? Are we going to get into World War III? I don't know. Um, the uh, – you know, in World War II, Stalin and Russia were allies for a while until Operation Barbarossa in 1942, but they – agreed to split up Poland because um, Stalin's thinking was that uh, – well, he didn't trust Hitler, obviously good reason. And so the Russians invaded half of Poland, the eastern part, because uh, Stalin realized that would give him a buffer in case the Nazis did invade. And then you have – I'm, I'm, so, I'm a little bit back on the topic, but Ukraine did get their own independence. So did other Soviet bloc nations. And I, you know, I support countries becoming independent if they so see fit. That's even in our own Declaration of Independence. So that's kind of a curveball thing. Taiwan, really, I mean, the Chinese—they're quasi-capitalists in their system. I know they're totalitarian and et cetera, like that. Um, if we get into some war with Russia, are we going to have the resources to defend Taiwan? Probably. What great cost is it going to be? Awful high. And China and Russia have the BRIC Treaty, and I believe it's uh, Argentina. Um, I believe South Africa is doing this too, where they're going to a gold-based standard. And we're still on the oil standard, and so we could be suffering. And Peter Schiff wrote about this too. Um, us, we're so interdependent, if you will, by trade and economics that our sanctions could actually hurt us pretty severely. We're seeing that with gas prices now. So there are long-term ramifications. But hey, you know what? Somehow we got off of COVID. Oh, look, COVID's over. Well, you can go back to life as normal. Uh, you know, just 
ignore all the wrongdoers that, that caused this. Uh, oh, look, World War Three! Look, look, look over here. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it fascinating? COVID's winding down. Now we got the next fear mongering, control the people game show. I, I just I wonder what Stewart thinks about this. Uh, I just I just throw out my thoughts there. Yeah. Well, I think that's no, a good segue, you, Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think people have figured out that there's a game on for their, you know, for their attention. That's for sure. Um, the reason I, I, you know, but I, I do think that this question of the, the end of the system is, is very real. Because the, um, you know, it's very interesting. We've, we've actually reported similar things. Um, there was also, sorry, we reported similar things to what you said about the, I forgot the guy you said who wrote the book, but the sanctions could, could hurt us, um, you know, as bad as they're hurting Russia, uh, which is, which is interesting. And there was a, there was a meeting just at the beginning of the week between, um, or maybe the, the weekend where the Eurasian Economic Union, which is Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and maybe one or two other countries and China where they discussed openly the need for a new financial and monetary system internationally, um, which they do produce the majority of, uh, not the majority, but they produce a huge share of the world's um, key minerals, raw materials. I think 66% of the world's steel or something comes from just Russia, China, and India. And um, so they're, I think, rightfully a little bit indignant that we're going to, you know, we're going to be okay if you try to ice us out of the international system. Um, remember, we have not exactly made a ton of friends in the recent decades with the kind of um, threats if you don't go along with liberal democracy. It's kind of like what I was saying with, um, you know, this kind of liberal, um, liberal economics, uh, a, a few minutes ago, which, which, um, Ukraine actually is very interesting because as soon as Ukraine rejected the, as soon as there was the coup in 2014 and they, they did the new government, which, you know, of course we brought in, um, did go with the European union, did accept, uh, loans from the IMF the International Monetary Fund, their economy has been destroyed. There's been, I think, um, there's been something like a million people who have left Ukraine every year, if I remember right. Something enormous. There's, there is a collapse of that country. It's become the poorest country in Europe since, since uh, 2014. Um, all the while, further in debt to Western financial institutions. So anyways, I think that the we're getting to the emperor has no clothes moment, um, which is, I think really the, the, the main issue because you, you, we, we knew we, we've known the whole time. And, and of course I, I, you know, people should understand Lyndon LaRouche's role in this because he was never just either anti-war or anti-anything or pro anything. It was, what is actually the nature of economics? How do, how do you knowably have a successful economy 
for any nation. And, and it's integral to this question of productivity. Um, it's why you have to have the sense of the machine tool principle, that if you can make machines and make technologies that that allow one person to do the work of 10 people or, or, or allow the person to do the work of 100 people, then that's civilization. That's, that's success. Um, and that's actually what um, what the, the world central bankers, the great reset crowd, um, you know, the people really behind the, the Green New Deal, that's what they hate the most because they actually have a hatred of mankind. They have a hatred that, that we are different from, I know I'm getting a little bit off subject here, but we are different, this so-called equilibrium with nature. And if we exert that kind of vision that we are going to lift the standard of living up of every citizen in our country and, of course, spread that as an example to the world and not be beholden to threats of, oh, are we being liberal enough? Are we verging towards authoritarianism or too nationalistic or whatever? This kind of stupid, you know, groupthink stuff that's meant to get people to turn their brains off and just go along, which is what it, <laughs> what it does. It doesn't, it's not actually a truthful principle of anything. It's just meant to get people to, to stick their head in the sand. Um, so, you know, I think that's really what you're looking at is, is, um, is that you have to think about it from that standpoint and China's relationship with other countries, um, China's fear of us trying to use Taiwan as a powder keg to blow up, um, their part of the world, which is totally the same thing as what was done in Ukraine is take like the closest area of Russia and we just blew it up. we we put billions of dollars in. We overthrew the government. We we fostered a totally anti-Russian, um, you know, tenor. They actually they actually banned the, the use of the Russian language in Ukraine um, somewhat after the, uh, the the coup in 2014, which should tell you some of why there was angst amongst the Crimeans and the the Donetsk and Luhansk peoples who all speak Russian. Um, so I think that's that's what we don't want to do with Taiwan. Is that would be the worst thing is to just blow it up um, for the sake of some narrative, for the sake of some China is authoritarian and we're and we and they want to be liberal and you know um, it didn't work in Afghanistan. We we blew up Afghanistan. We we so-called gave them liberal democracy um, for for almost 20 years. We brought in academics. We foisted up a fake government. Um, they all paid homage to democracy and Western values and women's rights and all this crap. And then in 10 days, it collapsed. Guess why? Because the majority of Afghan people didn't really give a damn about a fake government because it, you can't just impose something externally and ignore the, the actual circumstances on the ground anywhere. What we have is unique to, to us in the United States. It's extremely valuable and principled, and what our Constitution represents is, is profound for the world, but we should not try to force that on anybody's throats, down anybody's throats, and then, you know, wage wars in order to, to deliver. So that's what I'd say. 
So, so let me ask you this. So in, in your opinion, then, if if China were to, you know, take, you know, take back as they see it, at least, Taiwan, what do you think that the, the, the United States stance is? I mean, is that something we just, just kind of sit back and, and have happen what happened over in uh, – I, I, again, I'm, I, I think if they, they were not just going to take the edges – I mean, I, personally, I think Putin's probably going to just be satisfied with just taking the edges of uh, Ukraine and be done with it. That's what I think. Um, but I don't think that's – I mean, I don't think that's something that, you know, China would be happy with. Uh, I mean, I think if they want to take Taiwan, they're going to take, the, they're, they're going to take all of it. And so my, my question is, is, is that something, you know, we should actually defend, defend or just allow China to, to, to just take it? Well, um, since we opened diplomatic relations with China in 1971, <clears throat> um, or maybe 72, the the like core principle was what was has been called the One China policy. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, which includes Taiwan and includes Hong Kong, and every American government has upheld that. Um, upheld that idea and China has always asked and they've always said well you know this is when we started our relationship um, that's what we agreed upon they consider it part of their country Um, they consider it a different part of their country or two different parts of their countries but they consider it their country and the United States has always um, has always agreed to that Um, Taiwan is definitely different. If it's you know the history is is very difficult because of the civil war. Um, so I don't know if there's really a good answer, and I don't really think that it's something that we're in a position to decide because we would be breaking our um, our promise to another country for going back 50 years now that said we promise to not treat this as an independent nation. Um, you know, because what happens when, when you do that, um, you have to kind of think about it. The United States has been the major, you know, power in the world since the end of World War II. People call it the world policeman. Of course, you guys were talking a minute ago about the Petrol dollar, made main contributor to NATO and military-wise, you know, all things. The United States is obviously the major superpower. When you have a little tiny country which is angry at its big brother, um, you know, if you've got a big brother and, and you're kind of upset that, that you're not getting what you want, it, you know, nobody really gives a shit. Sorry, no one gives a crap. <laughs> When you have a giant superpower that comes in and starts saying, oh, yeah, you should, you should stand up to them. They, you shouldn't let them treat you that way. There's no, there's no way that that would ever work unless you feel emboldened by the fact that there's a major superpower fanning the flames to, to get you to stand up to you know, the other person you're, you know, or whatever country you're, you're upset with. Um, so either way, I don't think it's, I don't think there's any positive outcome that would come from us, um, 
playing that kind of role. Um, I think that so. That's good. Yeah. Defense by the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. What then? Well, what about uh, you know the the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, where you know we're committed to, you know, their defense, you know, their defensive capabilities. I mean, were they to maintain it if if they were to, uh, you know, attack it, then we're, you know, what's going to happen, you know, I mean, we are, are we not obligated to uh, fulfill our agreements? I mean, we do have an agreement to, you know, help them maintain their defensive capabilities. And, and if, you know, China were to come in to attack militarily, um, then, I mean, if we can't abide by our agreements, then how can, you know, our word be, I mean, seriously, I mean, is that not a, a hit against the, the trust of, uh, of other nations to the United States? No, definitely not. No, because what, what we're really talking about and what, you know, what, what you're asking is, um, is really who has the right to decide the fate of other countries. This is an, an internal conflict to China. China, the the communists, you know, the Chinese Communist Party could go over, and has has had the ability to go over and conquer Taiwan for for decades. They could have done that if they wanted to. Um, they have declined to do that in the interest, I think, of whatever calculus they they deem valuable to to maintain peace you know whatever however however good or bad or whatever um that's what the chinese communist party has deemed the best thing to do is to to maintain uh an arm's length distance but to not intervene directly and to just maintain two two different they call it you know one country two systems and they've they've upheld that to every other country that they deal with if if a country recognizes taiwan diplomatically they won't trade with them there's a there's a handful of countries in the world that that do and they really won't deal with them um and so you know that's but that's what you're that's what you're talking about it's it's something which is complex there's rights and wrongs on both sides and for us to say something like we're going to uphold their military right, um, which is which is not totally true, by the way. It was it's not legal for American, like there was found recently that there was American troops in Taiwan training Taiwanese troops, which was a big no-no. That was a big. The Chinese freaked out about that. I think sometime at the end of last year or something. Um, but I think the more substantial question is the one of how do you resolve internal conflicts, some of which are very complicated and very touchy, um, and who should be allowed to do that. And what was done just before 9-11, but then it took off with 9-11, was Tony Blair, former British Prime Minister, um, in 1999 gave a speech um, at the University of Chicago where he said that we have to end the era of the nation state because there are circumstances that are arising, especially terrorism, he mentioned, but then he also started talking about um, 
you know, dictatorships and reasons that need intervention. And he said, we have to disavow this old, you know, crusty concept of nation states. It's not useful anymore because we need the global community. We need the global community with what it became known as his responsibility to protect R2P doctrine that would give the, the, whoever, the, the, you know, the anointed ones, the right to intervene wherever in the world for the sake of human right, defense of human rights and other things like democracy and stopping genocide and blah, blah, blah. Um, this became known as the, the, the rules-based order. Um, no mention that the United Nations Charter says no aggressive war is allowed. They specify very clearly defense of human rights. They specify very clearly the means that the global community cannot um, overreach and become a new imperium um, or group of imperial you know, colonial powers. But this became the rules-based order, which is kind of a arbitrary designation of the anointed countries that, you know, are really the, you know, what some people call globalists and this kind of um, NATO and other alliance that basically says we can do whatever we want if it's in the name of, of defending freedom. And um, it's a totally slippery slope because we've done a lot of, terrible, terrible things in the name of so-called defending freedom. And if, if we're not guided by a higher principle um, than just kind of a knee-jerk reaction of, oh, well, these people want freedom and th- the big brother says you can't have it, totally knee-jerk, totally reactionary. If we're not guided by something more principled than that, then – then there, there's really no, there's no justification for for the use of our power, just to enforce, um, you know, to 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 basically in, impede on other nations' sovereignty, for a, a, a an unprincipled way like that. So I think it's a much, it requires going to a deeper um, discussion of of what what is the nature of statecraft and what is what is actually a universal what is actually the, the um, common interest of mankind, um, which I think is, is really something that, that you have to get to. Well, one of the things that I've always contended is, it, 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 and maybe you think that this wouldn't be the case, but, I mean, throughout all of history, and, and the, you know, there's been some type of dominant power hegemony in the, in, in the world. And you and I you have talked a little bit about this, I think. And what it's, a lot of people are concerned about, frankly, including, including myself, is that, you know, the next world, you know, hegemon is, is going to be China. And, 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 and by what definition would that be a good thing? Uh, I mean, I mean it, it's almost to the point where, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it's going to come down to, you know, do you want, you know, like the United States to maintain to be the, you know, the world because I think there's always going to be one. I think there's always going to be, you know, a state that's going to be the, the hegemon of the planet, be good or ill, but I think there's always going to be one. Uh, and at this point in history, I think, okay, it's, it's going to come down to 
I mean, I'm, you know, frankly, the United States and China, and I just don't see a good scenario where if China does, you know, become, you know, that hegemon, what that means for, you know, you know, for the world. And, and, and frankly, even more specifically to us, the United States. No, we have to we have to get rid of the hegemons, get rid of the hegemony. It's but just not. It just won't possible. function. I don't even think it's possible. So I really don't. What, um, what uh, is it that we're going to put out a, a documentary at some point soon? Um, we've we've reported on it many times, um, and are working on something on this question of the Roosevelt FDR administration during World War II and the relationship with Stalin and uh, somewhat, so a little bit, is I think mostly related around Stalin, but there's, um, there's a lot to be said about what that, what came out of that because um, basically Roosevelt was, you know, encouraged to join the war by Churchill who was, who was being attacked brutally um, we did lend lease, you know, we produced tons of stuff for the British, for, you know, whatever Europeans we could, we got tons of stuff for the Soviets before we got involved. But then finally, when we decided to get more involved, of course, Pearl Harbor was the, the big factor in that, but just a little before Pearl Harbor, when, um, when Churchill and, and uh, Roosevelt started meeting more, more seriously, the conflict was there was a very clear conflict where where Roosevelt told Churchill, "Well, you understand that if we're going to fight this war, we're going to fight it to end colonialism and empires for good, right?" And Churchill said, "Well, what are you talking about? You know, we're fighting it to defeat the Nazis, but." the British empire is still, you know, we still are going to be okay. Like we're still going to run the world. And Roosevelt said, I don't think so. I don't think you understand. Um, and they, and they had fights and, uh, and Churchill never came around to it, but Roosevelt's idea was not let's be the next hegemon. Let's, let's displace the British as the next hegemon. Roosevelt's idea, which was, which was very much, um, uh, agreed upon by people like Eisenhower, MacArthur, um, um, Eleanor Roosevelt played a huge uh, mentorship factor with with Kennedy. Um, so this this factor continued for a couple of decades in the United States. Excuse me, but um, Roosevelt said we're gonna we're gonna win the war. We'll help you win the war. We're gonna beat the fascists. But then we're going to turn our war machine into a peace machine, and we're going to export capital goods to every former colonial country in the world. Because when it comes down to it, and he said this, he said this repeatedly in his fireside chats, in speeches, um, and much more so in, in documentation. There's a wonderful book called As He Thought, which is written by Elliot Roosevelt, his son, who went to all the big um, – conferences during World War II with, uh, with, with FDR. Roosevelt said the true cause of war is economic poverty and, and, uh, and inequality, which leads to conflict every time. 
And that's the real, if, if we're going to fight to stop the fascists, we're, we'd be futile if we don't fight much, much harder to defeat the econo- what he called the economic royalists who will perpetuate inequality and cause the next conflict, you know, in 10 more years. So Roosevelt was a very different mindset that peace was not just, um, you know, be stronger than everybody else that you secure peace, which is basically what we've had since Roosevelt died and since we had, especially since Kennedy was, was assassinated. And we've had this kind of you know, increasing neoliberal kind of stupidity, like brain-dead, um, bureaucratic, um, ideological thinking, which isn't actually serious if you want what's in the interest of your people or any other people, for that matter. But Roosevelt said, oh, what peace is not just crushing all of your enemies and scaring them, but peace is 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 sharing the benefit of the 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 benefits of mankind and of, and of actual economic and technological development that will prevent conflicts in the future because you're going to take away the reasons for the tension and conflict, which are always the things that the British Empire um, tried to do. The British Empire actually uh, massacred a bunch of Greeks during and after World War II. Who, the Greeks were, the, were on the Allies' side against the, against the Nazis. And the British, because the Greeks were nationalists and they opposed the British imperial rule, the British massacred Greeks um, because they, they thought that... So, the, so this difference in thinking is what has to take place. And it used to exist in the United States it's what MacArthur did with Japan. You know, we didn't go in after World War II and just destroy Japan and turn them into vassal states and, and, uh, and impoverish them. What did we do to Japan? We brought them manufacturing. Why did, why did Japan become the, the most dense part of um, machining and automobile and heavy industry manufacturing after the, you know, the second half of the 20th century? It was because it was just American techniques. American, you know, training. Um, that's how you treat your enemy. That's really what we should be doing with our enemies is training their nations to become better republics. And if you want, if you really want peace and you want to avoid World War III, then you then you have to be thinking like that. You have to be thinking how to how to create not just nominal dem- democracies and American style republics, which is you know, kind of what we what we've been doing, like we would have in Afghanistan, but actual genuine transformation of the economic potential, the true substance of the United States, which was this idea that science and technology free mankind from the from endless servitude to you know financial and imperial elites. Um, that's that's how we have to deal with with Taiwan and China. We just don't treat them like. You know, it's either you or me, buddy. <laughs> you know, just be be human. But you, uh, I'm trying to remember the term uh, of the meeting that the LaRouche uh, organization is proposing. Uh, I, I certainly, what's the name of that? And I'd like to, like to hear more about what, what that is. I'm, I'm trying to think of it, but I can't remember what it is, uh, Stuart. Some kind of yeah, uh, so meeting we're calling... that they want to do. So as I... Um, when, oh, when the hear, treaty like, oh, yeah, of Westphalia. That, um, yeah, Westphalia, yeah. 
So we're calling for a new security and development architecture um, that would take into consideration uh, the interest of everybody, the interest of every nation, and model it on the Treaty of Westphalia, which was um, a long time ago. It was after 100 years, over 100 years of warfare in Europe, where Protestants and Catholics were killing each other. It had been going on for so many generations, people didn't even know how the war started or why they were fighting. They just knew that the other guy killed their friend or their brother or their father, and they had to kill him back. So the Treaty of Westphalia was this uh, total singularity. It was, it was completely out of the blue where um, where the leadership came in and said, um, there was a guy named Metternich, came in and said, we need to change change this, you know, this process and we need to forgive, we all need to forgive each other and we need to, to establish a peace which is in the interest of the other. That was the key thing. We're, gonna, we're going to consider what's in the interest of the other, not just vengeance against, you know, for ourselves, but, but what is in the interest of others such that we can thereby have, you know, peace, which is in the interest of ourselves. Um, and it was, it was a, you know, it was quite a noble concept, which, which really did lead to uh, the, the dawn of the nation state in Europe. Um, so, yeah, we're calling on that right now for really a, uh, a coming to reality, coming to grips with reality uh, in the face of potential world war um, with what, how much provocation we're pushing in, in you know, the Ukraine-Russia conflict and, and rather to, to acknowledge that we have to accept that there are interests. Russia does have interests and they have to be acknowledged. They have to be listened to. It doesn't mean we have to bend over and take it, but it means we have to find what, what they actually want, which largely has been a, a neutral Ukraine um, and a promise to not extend NATO further. And, um, and, and, and we're saying that that is actually in our interest. It's actually not in our interest to scream about freedom and um, authoritarianism and come to the aid of, of Ukraine, which is, which is unfortunately like um, like Paul was saying, they're actually hurting themselves. Um, they're they're being induced to hurt themselves. It'd be much better for Ukraine to just say we're going to be neutral like Switzerland, and let's launch a Eurasian uh, development perspective. Let's 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 bring in the whole region around economic development, which is which is really what's needed. So people can find out about that on the um, it's the LaRoucheOrganization.com is uh, the is one of our websites, but the Schiller Institute is actually the one circulating that petition, um, which I recommend people to, to look up and add your name and help us circulate. We have a lot of good information on there as well. So that's my, that's my plug. Thanks, Robert. You helped on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome. Uh, it's been, uh, it's certainly been an interesting evening uh, here on the program. And, now, what type of economic system, you know, let's say, you know, they get together, they have this, this new uh, Westphalia, uh, you know, agreement. I mean, what, what type of economic system are we looking at? I mean, are we talking about, you know, uh, you know a capitalistic system, a socialist system, a, a combination thereof? I mean, what's your, 
What's uh, the Schiller Institution or maybe even yourself uh, envision that? Okay, well, this is interesting. This is an, this might be another discussion, but actually, um, I think his name was your friend on there. He had brought up what was interesting, which is that China is actually not really communist anymore. They're more capitalist, um, which is true. It's very true. Um, but it's not... It's not the whole picture. What, what China realized, um, they did a lot of different things. Of course, they tried the, you know, the Mao communist thing, which was a total disaster. Um, but they never really went for the full economic liberalization. Um, and they caught a lot of flack for that. They also suffered a good amount for that by doing the kind of the sweatshop um, sweatshop thing in the, you know, the eighties and nineties and whatnot. But, um, what, what, what the, the most favored economist in China, the most, the most read economist in China is actually not a Chinese economist. He's a German economist named Friedrich List. Um, he's the, he's the most popular economist. He was in the 1800s. Um, now it's interesting about Friedrich List is that he also was not really a German economist. He spent most of his time and energy in the United States. And he was a proponent of um, Hamilton, Henry Carey, um, and what became known as the American system, which is not taught in schools anymore, which is a, a, a crime against humanity, because it was the backbone of, our constitution and the, the biggest economic booms in the United States. It was not capitalist in the sense of, you know, big entrepreneurs and, you know, make tons of money and hire all the, you know, hire everybody. And, and that's the trickle down theory, but it wasn't communist, um, you know, where the state controls everything or something, but it was directed credit. And the concept was, um, if you if you if you have some some agency, you know, traditionally a government or or whatever, that can direct credit towards things that are going to be more productive, then you're you're actually dealing with something much different than any monetary system, which is which is a trap that people generally fall into in debating. Well, who should who should control the money? Should it be private or should it be public? It's not about money at all, actually, because it's, um, as Lyndon LaRouche used to say, money's stupid. So forget asking who's, you know, what the money is going to do or how the money works. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What's your intention with it? Are you going to use your money? Are you going to use your credit to do things which are going to advance the productivity of the nation? Are you going to do things to make schools better? Are you going to fund a space program? Um, you know, which is going to tenfold increase your rate of scientific discovery over the next 50 years? Or are you going to say, whatever, we're going to legalize drugs, we're going to, uh, you know, shut down all of our infrastructure, we're going to um, fund climate change and take away from the space program? You know, are we going to do things, are we going to bail out Wall Street for 12 years? Um, that's what really matters, and it it, it it gets into a discussion of what is real value, 
more than who controls the money. And um, that's what we should do. China is, you know, however imperfectly, however their system is with the Communist Party and all that, there is a certain openness towards moving in a direction where they are producers and not speculators, not sitting and watching the stock market and whatever, but um, but producing, growing their economy, getting out of poverty. Um, you know, the biggest amount of Chinese investment is, is railroads, power plants, ports, um, logistics hubs all over the world. Um, frankly, the things that we should be doing, uh, we should, we should, we, we should get away from shutting down coal plants and, and uh, power plants and going green, forcing countries to go green and, and go back towards real development. Um, so if we do that, I think that the, uh, the ism, the, tight, the, the ism of the economic system is going to be less the issue than are we actually advancing mankind and um, reflecting this, this, uh, this optimism that we can actually solve our problems if we think rationally about, um, you know, pushing ahead and making new discoveries and, and making new technological leaps. I think that's, and, you know, and, and having an economic system that lends towards doing that as opposed to being ideological of, oh, well, we need to have hands off and let the invisible hand decide, which is, you know, an ideology which is not really delivered so much, um, to put it lightly. So one thing we are unfortunately running out of time tonight. I'm sure we have, you know, other things we can discuss, you know, other other episodes, certainly. Uh, now, one thing you hear a lot about, uh, you know, China is about their treatment of the Uyghurs. Uh, I'd like to touch on that briefly uh, before, you know, got to get, start getting ready to close things out tonight. Um, I mean, we talked some, you know, not not at length. We talked some tonight about, you know, you know, propaganda, and you know, are we getting the truth about, you know, Ukraine? But also, we're talking about China. I mean, what, what's your take on on what's going on, you know, in that, you know, we talk about human rights, you know, human rights abuses and their treatment of the Uyghurs. Um. Well. I think it's kind of similar um, is what I was saying about Taiwan. Um, the, uh, this, you know, t- let me say this. I don't totally know, and I'm not going to um, try to give some party line or whatever. Uh, what, what the Chinese are saying, which is very interesting, is this is how we're dealing with terrorism. And then they start talking about uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and say so that's how you dealt with terrorism. And, you know, in, in Libya and Syria and Somalia, all these places that we, we use drones and drop bombs. Um, so they're saying that they've had a bad terrorist problem, which is true. It's not quite like Islamic State or something, but it's true. There was uh, many dozens of of terrorist attacks in the uh, the early 2000s up until kind of the mid 20 teens, and um, and that's historically been the case. There's a lot of you know there's a lot of stuff with the Central Asian nations and and Islam and different 
groupings around there. Um, and China just so they're saying that we're we're dealing with it by um, preempting it by trying to set up centers where we can incorporate people or train them or whatever, educate them so that they're more part of Chinese society and not, um, not radicalized. Um, I don't want to say much more cause I don't, again, I think a lot of the stuff is silly. I mean, a lot, some of like what you're seeing in the news is, you know, satellite imagery of concentration camps and stuff and in that area, which is then later turned out to be, um, not true, uh, stuff that is a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit wild-eyed, um, in my opinion, but at the same time, I don't know everything that's going on there, and I think it's kind of the same thing. I think we get into a slippery slope if we start, um, you know, looking for the next bad guy to uh, to go and overthrow. There was a quote by um, John Quincy Adams, who was uh, – I don't know, the fourth president, maybe, um, 1820s, who said uh, we, we should lead by example and not go, go, you know, go abroad seeking for monsters to destroy as, a, as foreign policy. And I think, it's, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, I think China has a lot of problems. They've got enormous complexities. You know, they've got 53 or 52 different ethnic uh, ethnicities in their country, not just not just other people from other parts of the world who came in and made a melting pot like the United States, but like actually over 50 different ethnic groups within their own country. So it's immensely complicated. There's immense problems. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff is overly complicated by the fact that we have a kind of a, a singular lens of this this liberal this liberal democracy I've been, I've been, um, you know, ridiculing that, that we view things through, which I think is, is doesn't help the problem. And do you think, uh, just, just real quickly, and, and this probably could encompass the entire episode, but I mean, do you think that, I mean, in the you know, long term that, I mean, so there have been people talking about how the Chinese not just want to be, you know, the world's, you know, hegemon, as we discussed earlier, but they, I mean, they actually want to do world dominance, where they see themselves as basically the rulers of the globe. Um, I mean, what, what's your thoughts on, on that? Um, no, I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I think, um, I think that uh, they responded to, They've, they've responded increasingly um, forcefully over the last couple of decades to the the encroaching um, uh, liberal order, and they've gone along with a lot of it. Um, you know, they went along with a lot of the trade organizations. They went along with a lot of the big the big name, you know, UN and um, human rights things and the Paris Accord, and they went. They've gone along with a lot of it, um, but they've but they've they've increasingly decided to to reject it, like what they did at the at the COP26 summit around the climate stuff last year, um, when they see it as as absolutely stupid, um, which which I think tells us that they're not 
trying to, to not be a part of the global community or take it over. Um, they're actually trying to be, uh, to play a, a you know, a, a, a normal role as a, as a power, as a huge, powerful country as part of a, as part of the, you know, quote unquote global community. I mean, they've, if you listen to any speech by any Chinese diplomat for the last 10 years, they always talk about the United Nations. They always talk about, you know, international law. Like the, they go back to like bread and butter issues. So you could say they're just, you know, lying through their teeth and they're doing the opposite behind the scenes. Fine. But, um, you know, they're pretty consistent with, with how they've framed um, that. And I, and I think, that that it's it's very it's a very reasonable thing because this so-called um, you know community of nations or liberal order or whatever has been um, so so bad has been so uh, mistreated for so many different countries that that the distance they've put um, you know them, themselves away from it is is uh, is totally understandable. Um, so the other thing that China is doing, though, that I'll say, which um, I probably should have said earlier, yeah, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, we've um, got about a minute belt and, to close things out. Go ahead. Let's be putting comments okay. in. The belt, and, the belt and Road Initiative is is a good thing. Um, this is this is a uh, this is an amazing idea. This is something that um, is totally in line with a policy of, of global. Integration and economic development, which um, will actually improve the, the quality of life of any nation which joins it. Um, so I'll, I know we got to go, so I'll just end with that. But so I, I hope that's the case. Yeah, well, yeah, we hope that's that that's genuine. We'll speak more of that, and of course, as we all always hear, time will tell. Well, anyway, no, I certainly appreciate all your time, uh, you know, tonight, Stuart, uh, being on the show. We certainly want to have the you're back on again, and I want to thank everyone uh, listening, whether you're listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast um, uh, programming. You know, we are looking to have uh, a gentleman on who is a writer for The Blaze on March 30th, so we're looking forward to uh, having him on the show, and so we will uh, look forward to talk with him and, and see you next time uh, next week. Uh, tomorrow I turn into a leprechaun, so I want to wish everyone a happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, be safe, uh, but definitely um, uh, enjoy the, the day. I usually take, or not usually, I pretty much always take the day off, so uh, I'll be uh, enjoying the festivities of, of being at least partially Irish. Uh, but I will uh, close tonight, as I do every night, and that is with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And uh, certainly appreciate it, and we will see you next time. So take care, folks. We'll see you then, and good night.